We all target players we want in trades, but what about targeting those players' fantasy managers? I'll ask Fred Zinke about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 8th. It's show number 26 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Fred Zinke from Yahoo Sports and the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast discussing how to target fantasy team managers in trades, his teams and leagues in the year to date, what we might learn from Italian Breakfast, Paul Goldschmidt, Julio Rodriguez, and Juan Duran, when to cut an injured star like Bryce Harper and his boons and banes. We'll also have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including the returns of outfielders Eddie Rosario in Atlanta, Ben Gamble in Pittsburgh, and Tyler Naquin in Cincinnati. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Eloy Jimenez returning to the Chicago lineup and pitcher activations, including Jake Odorizzi in Houston and Josh Winder in Minnesota. We also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Boston's starting pitcher Brian Bayo. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about the times through the order penalty. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Fred Zinke is in the hoose. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Fred Zinke from Yahoo Sports and the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Fred, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Yes, I'm glad to be here. I haven't been on this uh, podcast in a really long time, and I've missed it, so I'm really excited to be back. Well, it's always good, too. I was If I was thinking any more clearly, I would have had you last week for Canada Day. I was going to actually try to organize a big Canadian experts roundtable or something like that, and we could all have uh, extolled the virtues of our websites and of our country, but uh, it didn't work out that way. But there's actually quite a few Canadian people in our business. Yes, there are. Um, and sometimes there's been a few over the years where I didn't realize, you know, maybe at first that uh, that they were Canadian, that they are Canadian, and then find out after the fact. And obviously, uh, I think Phil Dussault, um, who lives in Quebec, has brought great recognition to Canadian fantasy baseball players with all his success in the NFBC last season. So, yeah, it's great to see, uh, you know, a lot of Canadians getting out there and showing that there is a, is a lot of baseball passion in this country. Maybe not the same volume of it that there is in America, but there, but there are plenty of us around. Rob Silver, uh, who's in Ottawa, yeah. he won the NFBC one year as well. So yeah. I don't know how long NFBC has been going, but, uh, you know, two people uh, from Canada winning the whole thing in the relatively short span of time it's been running is a pretty good track record. We've got a better track record than the Blue Jays, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so far, we've got two titles in much less time than they've they've had their two titles. So we're doing better than they are. And if they don't pick things up, they're not getting the third one this year. They've been a little frustrating the last few days. They've been a little frustrating all year, actually. It seems like when they're hitting, they're not pitching, and when they're pitching, they're not hitting. And, you know, if it all comes together, and there's still plenty of time, I think the Blue Jays could still be heard from because that offense is just so overpowering when it's firing on all cylinders. 
The problem is, so far, it hasn't really been firing on all cylinders. Uh, Vladdy, in particular, in the middle of that order, has not been uh, doing Vladdy things. Uh, there are flashes of it here and there, but he hasn't been really super consistent. And then, as I said, you know, once you get past Gosman and Manoa, and uh, it has been pretty inconsistent on the starting pitching front. And Manoa didn't look that good the other night either. No, he didn't. Yeah, the first inning he he struggled. I um because they expanded the postseason this year. I've said all along that I was not worried about the Blue Jays making the playoffs. That I was like they'll make it, and if they're if their pitching's healthy when they get there they're going to be a problem for someone uh, this week. I'd say the last week would be about the first time where I am starting to worry a bit. Just we've hit mid season. Like you said, there are obvious problems to me. The pitching's a concern. It feels like one step forward, one step back, you know, Kikuchi has been a big problem. Brios has been a problem. Now Ryu's gone. I don't know how long they'll be able to count on stripling. Yeah. I, I, I worry a bit about them making the playoffs. I felt like they would make it no problem. I did also say all along that if they don't make the playoffs, now that six teams in the American League make the playoffs, if you can't make it at six teams, you probably have too many holes to be a really real World Series contender anyway. So I, I, I do think I still feel that way. If they can't get in, I know the AL East is super tough, but if they can't get in on the six teams, they probably don't have what it takes and, and need to go back to the drawing board to some degree. I think that's right. The whole idea of we made the playoffs as some kind of rallying cry now is pretty diluted because with so many teams making the playoffs, it's starting to remind me of hockey when they kept adding more and more teams into that first round of the playoffs. All those teams were fairly poor. They very rarely won a title unless they were playing the Leafs, of course, then they were a pretty good bet to <laughs> to get it to get into the, the next round. But uh, you know, the the playoffs, to my way of thinking, used to mean a lot more than they do as they keep adding more and more teams. It just gets less and less interesting. And kind of perversely, it makes the regular season less and less interesting too, because, you know, who watches regular season NHL? You know, everybody gets in who's who's got a pulse. Yeah, baseball is starting to trend towards other sports. It still the, has the smaller percentage of teams making the playoffs than football, basketball, or hockey, but it's trended closer it's getting close to football right now, still not at basketball or hockey where those two sports are around 50% of the teams getting in. Like you said, I do remember the days in hockey in the 80s where there were 21 teams in the league and 16 made the playoffs. Right. You want to talk about a meaningless regular season, 16 out of 21 made the playoffs in the NHL in the 1980s and, you know, and played full series in the first round. I think baseball set it up in an interesting way. I think there's a good reward right now. I like. I think a lot of people haven't looked closely at the new playoff system. There's a good reward for finishing in the top couple spots in your in your league that gets you that buy through the first round. Those also, I think the first wild card spot to me is really interesting. Um, again, I think some people haven't really looked at this yet, but it's from what I've read, the first wild card team gets all the home games in the first round. It's a best of three. The first wild card team plays the second wild card team. The third wild card team plays the last division winner but that last division winner and the first wildcard team get all of the games in that best of three at their home park so just looking ahead like as just for example as a jays fan like man i would way rather have those games at rogers center than in tampa where toronto always struggles than in fenway where we know that place can get rocking in october um i think they've set it up in an, in an interesting way where there should be motivators for teams even once they've qualified for the postseason to get themselves the most advantageous situation in the first round 
we're kind of veering off fantasy baseball and into real For baseball, sure. but that's fine. Uh, what kind of moves do you think or expect the Jays to make as they prepare for what they hope is going to be a long playoff run, given the relative power of their team? Yeah, it, I think they'll need a starting pitcher. I think basically every contender will add a reliever or two. That seems to be the way every year. They're pretty cheap to get. I think the Jays will add a reliever, not like a Sergio like Romo. To, yeah, maybe a <laughs> maybe a little better version of him. But I think the Jays will add a reliever. Um, you know what they did getting Trevor Richards last year or something like that. Again, I think they need a starter. A left-handed DH could be a uh, but but maybe they could be a possibility. But maybe they just play Kirk and one of Jansen or Moreno every day uh, down the stretch. They do have three catchers. I don't know. I think that's the big decision for the Jays is would they move Jansen in an effort to, you know, get starting pitching in an effort to get a left-handed DH and then just go with Kirk and Moreno behind the plate. The Jays have always liked Jansen. They always like the way he handles the pitchers. Um, they might want him. And we talked about how they have some pitchers floundering. They might want him and they might just use Kirk a lot at DH and use Jansen the odd day and Moreno the odd day at DH. I haven't looked recently, but uh, how does Kirk hit uh, right and left-handed pitching? What is, uh, are his platoon splits? Yeah, pr- pretty balanced, which is good. That's been the interesting thing for the Jays is they're a right-handed, a really right-handed heavy lineup. Um, but Kirk's this year been better against right-handers, but still good, still hitting 302 against lefties. So um, he's been pretty balanced. That's always been a plus for this Jays lineup that makes them so dangerous is they're mostly right-handed hitters. So they're a big problem for left-handed pitching, but a lot of the right-handed hitters do fine against right-handed pitchers. So uh, but but I do know, I think them getting Biggio back on track, he's been a lot better lately, uh, is helpful for them since he's a left-handed bat. Um, but I think that they, they could look at bringing a left-handed bat. I know all the people in Toronto would love that to be Joey Votto at the end of his career. That would be just a really cool story for him to be the Jays DH down the stretch. Um, I, I could see a case for just kind of making Kirk the DH every day he doesn't catch and just playing him and either Jansen or Moreno all the time. Moreno's been uh, quite a pleasant surprise for the Jays, I think, and makes a lot of their catching situation more interesting because all of a sudden they seem to have pathways to trade away catching to get what they need. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Jansen go because I think he's well thought of, especially on the defensive side as a receiver, as a framer, all of those kind of things. Plus, he's actually become you know a reasonably useful offensive player over the last couple of years as well. So I guess we'll see. How many drafts are you playing in fantasy this year? Um, I have about 10, about 10 teams, um, uh, but about half of those are draft and maybe more than that, about six or so are draft and holds. So I started to trend a little more towards just doing more draft and holds during the winter. I find they actually are just fun and they pass time doing the slow drafts in the winter. Um, it just kind of like, I usually get my projections done around new year by about new year's day at the latest. And then it just gives me something to do during January and February. I kind of always have one draft and hold draft going at a time, something to do on a break at work or when I'm at home and I'll, I'll go with like maybe the two hour, you know, pick allotment um, drafts. So I have a bunch of those and they're easy to manage during the week, a few minutes on Monday, a few minutes on Friday. So as far as, and even in tout wars, I went in the draft and hold this year. So I only have about three or four fab leagues and that's keeping my workload manageable during the season. You said you make uh, projections. Do you do your own projections every year or do you rely on uh, some combination of the published ones? No, I do my own projections every year, which I used to think was commonplace. And now the longer I've worked in the industry, I realize that not very many people do that. 
that even most of the best players don't. And they grab projections from one site or from several sites and then average them out. Um, I still do my own. So I'll sit down actually with my base, baseball forecaster, shameless plug while I'm on this podcast, but I do. I sit down with my baseball forecaster. I sit down with my fan graphs webpage and, uh, you know, stat cast and things like that. And I go through one player at a time, a few minutes on each player, and I make projections. Uh, I do that during December um, and then just, you know, tweak them throughout January and February as more transactions come in. And, and then I, and I kind of, January and February is kind of my time to compare my projections to ADP. I see who I'm high on. I see who I'm low on. I see if I want to make changes to to those players, if I've missed something, but yeah, I, I will maintain. I always say that my projection spreadsheet is my best friend for unfor- <laughs> for better or worse. It's my best friend from about December through till the end of March. And I'm so excited to close it at the end of March when I finish my last draft. You mentioned that you're playing draft and holds. Those are the kind of leagues where it's not just draft, hold, and forget best ball, or are you more right. talking about the ones where you're setting your lineup every week? Yeah, no, I'm doing draft champions where I set my lineup every week. So it does keep me somewhat involved. I, I had never been into those types of things. Uh, in fantasy football last summer, again, I think just to kind of have some fun and have a diversion, kill some time, whatever. I, I did a, a lot of fantasy football best balls. and But but those I did true best balls where you don't need to set your lineup. And I had a lot of fun doing them and following along. So then I didn't go to best balls in baseball, but I did go to draft champions leagues. Again, just to try to have more teams draft, extend my draft season because I really enjoy drafting, uh, but not to get myself in a situation where I'm spending four hours at my computer Sunday because I have, you know, a dozen fab teams. Do you find that doing the, well, I'm, I can't imagine it wouldn't be helpful, so I'll say it this way. How much does doing all those D- December, January drafts help you as you get into the real draft season where you're playing for, you know, larger stakes, the experts leagues, the big money uh, um, NFBC leagues and that kind of thing? Yeah, I I'm not sure how much it helps. Like it probably helps me a little bit. Like, like I said, like I'll start to notice certain players who I keep drafting in those draft champions leagues, which, you know, don't usually have a ton of money attached to them. And, or at least I don't play them for a ton of money. And uh, so they're kind of like a warm up that way. And if I keep getting the same players over and over again, it gives me a reason to go back and, and double check my projections on that player and think to myself, you know, do I, do I really, is this someone who I'm really going to be that invested in this year? Or do I need to downgrade these projections because I, I seem to be higher than the market? I could do that just by following along with ADP and just because uh, like the ADP sources now are so good compared to what they used to be and so helpful. Um, so I don't know if they're super helpful. They are interesting. That's for sure. I can actually see patterns in my interest. Guys I was interested in early and then guys I was interested in late and they're on different teams based on when I drafted them. I have certain players who I have shares of on my late drafts and then other players who I have shares of on my early drafts. And I find that interesting to see how my opinions change during draft season. Can you think of any example of a player you drafted a lot early and not a lot late and vice versa? Um, yeah, for sure. So for example, I have Tyler Anderson, which is good on all my early drafts because when he was unsigned, I was picking him based on, he was going really late and I could pick him just based on, I didn't mind the skill set and I felt like he would for sure sign into a starting job. So I felt like there was a floor there. Uh, Once he signed with the Dodgers, his draft price went way up and then I don't have him in any of my later drafts. Uh, Luis Arias is another one on the Brewers. I really liked him and I liked his skill set. He's not doing great this year. I have him in some of my earlier drafts. Then he suffered an injury in spring training and then I backed away from him. Um, 
but he's still hanging around on a lot of my draft champions rosters. So those are a couple examples where their values fluctuated for different reasons during draft season. And then, you know, the market changed on them. And I think that's something that all fantasy players should always keep in mind when you go into a draft is their values are going to fluctuate depending on the news, depending on their context, if they get traded or move teams partway through the draft season, especially. And then this year we had the additional issue of uh, not really knowing in a lot of cases what players were even going to be on what teams and various leagues had different ways of handling that. I was talking with somebody the other week, I think it was um, Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus was saying, he was playing in, I think, the National League Labor, and they had a redraft after the draft to account for all the players who had signed into the National League. That was how they organized it. The American League, I believe, was the same way. And so he had a big fabapalooza right at the start of the season because four or five players had signed into the National League between the draft that they had held and and opening day. And that really completely misvalued a lot of things because – you couldn't draft those guys even if you wanted them in the early rounds because they weren't signed, unlike uh, Tout, where you could sign any unsigned guy in either league and keep him in either league if he got him. So there, the the main lesson, I think, there is context really matters a lot, and you have to be willing to float with it. Yeah, I'll say this. I am really looking forward, cross your fingers, I am really looking forward to just having like a regular offseason, a regular 2022 season and then a regular you know off season of free agent signings at appropriate times and spring training at an appropriate length i feel like in fantasy baseball we've been like dancing around all these odd scenarios now for several years like we had the shortened 2020 season which was like a disaster to try to manage for fantasy baseball. And then we had the 2021 season where everybody's stats were skewed because we were coming off the shortened season. And then we had a regular 2021 season, but then we had the labor problems and then the shortened spring training. I am honestly really excited, hopefully this off season to just have 162 game data to work with in the winter and hopefully free agent signings and trades in November and December you know, so that we had, and then regular spring training, I will really enjoy that because I feel like in other play, sports where I play fantasy, we've had that. And in baseball, we've just gotten used to dancing around all these odd scenarios the last few years. How are your teams doing given all of what has transpired? Yeah, a real mix um, between different teams. Like I have a draft champions team that's done really well. And I have a few that are like in the race, but not at the top right now. Um, my Some of my fab leagues, uh, my my uh, labor team is like in the top half, but like kind of fluctuates, maybe has a couple good days and it's like fourth. And then maybe has a couple bad days and it's like seventh. That league's really bunched. Uh, my Tout Wars team's in second, at least it was yesterday. Um, but it's kind of in a bit of a cluster of teams that will not finish first, but we'll are all trying to finish second. So I'd say this is not my best fantasy season that I've had. Um, but it's a, it's only half over. So I guess we'll see uh, down the stretch. Like you just keep grinding away. I always, I keep writing about this, but I think John Birdie, like in the last six weeks or so, five weeks is a great reminder for all of us that you just never know. There would be fantasy teams out there that were the bottom of their league in steals and grabbed John Birdie around the beginning of June and now are near the top of their league in steals and have, have risen up the standings obviously as a result. So I think you just keep grinding away and, there will be another John Birdie. It might not be a steals guy. It might be a starting pitcher who wins 10 starts in a row or something out of nowhere. But like, uh, that's the fun of it for me is that 
you, you, part of you wishes it was really predictable, but it's the unpredictability that keeps us coming back that makes it so interesting. It is. Have you noticed that your better teams were the earlier drafted ones or the later drafted ones, or is there any pattern to that? No, no real pattern. Um, I, w- I was looking for that. Um, and I was looking to see if earlier late teams were better hitting or pitching. And there is no real pattern to that. Um, uh, so much of it is related to injuries, especially the draft champions, because you can't go out to fab to replace them. But so much is related to injuries that, you know, I'll have with the same draft strategy, I'll have teams that are crushing it and hitting. And then other teams that can't hit at all and are crushing it and pitching. So, so much of it is injuries or just individual players who, who have really, you know, really disappointed or really excelled for me. Have you had any batters who've been really consistently uh, excellent for you that have really pushed your teams along? Um, I have a lot of Trey Turner, which I know sounds like easy to have a lot of Trey Turner, but somehow I do. He was someone who I was targeting like like right at the very top of, of a lot of drafts and i was when you could set kds like i was going for pick number one and ha- and having him so i have him in a lot of leagues i also have a lot of manny machado so he hasn't been good the last couple of weeks because he had the ankle injury and he hasn't really done much since then but um getting an elite third baseman was a plan this year because i didn't like third base and uh so getting Machado early, I have no Devers. It was always Machado for me, and he's having a great season. So he's pushed a lot of my teams along in the hitting categories. And how about pitchers? Uh, let's see. I have a fair – well, I mentioned Anderson, who's been really helpful. Um, I have a fair amount of Nestor Cortez, who's been uh, been really valuable, and um, a pretty good amount of Logan Gilbert, who's been pretty good so far this year. So those are some off the top of my head who uh, I've got – who I've – been pushing my teams through um some of my aces i do have some chris sale from early drafts that's not good and i have some jacob Degrom from early drafts that's not good so i'm hoping those pay off in the second half but some of those teams are the ones that have have floundered a bit so far we've seen a lot of injuries to top players this year fred and it seems like more than in past years anyway i used to think that the best reason for playing shallow formats like mixed 12 team leagues was that you could skip the intensive knowledge of the player pool. You didn't have to get down to the, you know, backup third baseman or the third string third baseman on some team somewhere. Now I wonder if the best reason for playing shallow formats is because losing a significant player to injury isn't so impactful on your chances of competing in the league for the rest of the year. I'm thinking of, of course, uh, 12-team only leagues where as soon as the draft is over, there are no hitters. There just aren't. So yep. if you happen to lose your, uh, I don't know, if Aaron Judge had got hurt right at the start of the year, you cannot replace that. You just can't. But I think in shallower leagues, maybe the advantage is you can stay competitive, which makes it more fun for you. Uh, I know there are teams in my American League tout that have had injuries and they're done. And they're f- perfectly willing to admit they're done because there's nothing they can do in the free agent pool to, to counter the fact that uh, a really important batter got hurt. Yeah, I totally agree. I find the, sh- I find shallower leagues much more dynamic. Um, I think that's the best way I can put it. And that even compares 15-team and 12-team mixed leagues. 12-team leagues are more dynamic. 15-team leagues, like, there are players on waivers, but, uh, like, they're, they're not as high-end. Um, I think the smaller the league, you're right, the less injuries are a factor. They're always going to be a factor, but the more you can make up for them with good managerial moves, you're right, in the, in the onlys, like if you have a, a really bad run of injuries, like there's probably not much you can do to work around it. And that, and that's kind of frustrating. So it makes them 
it makes them actually trend a little bit more towards being almost like best ball leagues. You also, like I was in Toad NL the last couple of years and like, like you didn't, you don't make as many roster decisions in a week. You don't even make lineup decisions most weeks. Like you start every healthy body in your hitting lineup and you start pretty much every healthy pitcher, maybe just benching the ones that are going to Colorado or going to Yankee stadium or something like that. Like they're really straightforward moves. It's the shallower mixed leagues where you have to really weigh like, okay, this is a decent two-star pitcher. Do I use him or do I use a third reliever? And and you have to really, I think, make a lot more decisions in those leagues. And then the fab takes me longer in the shallow leagues because there are more options on the waiver wire. I think that's right. Uh, do you find that trading is more important or available to you in in uh, in the deeper leagues because nobody nobody can get anything off the free agent wire. So the only way to get something you need to move in the categories is to try to swing a trade and sacrifice where you can afford to sacrifice to gain where you can afford to gain. And there isn't as much of an impetus for that in the, in the shallower leagues, because if you need steals, you can always just go dig around in the free agent pool. Cause there are John birdies in the free agent pool, which John birdie I'm sure wasn't in the free agent pool in most 12 team NLs. No, that's right. He, he, he wasn't. Um, yeah, I think the trading is essential in the in the onlys. Uh, the hard part about trading in the onlys is whatever you're asking someone to give up, they're not going to be able to replace. You know, so when you say to someone like, "Can you give me your best base dealer?" They're not going to find another base dealer on waivers. So it has to be so. I find later in the season you can make very purposeful trades in an only where someone realizes like I've got a 20 steel lead on the next person and they're never going to catch me. They're not going to find anyone on waivers to catch me. So go ahead, take my, my base. Dealer. The trades I find in an only are, they're not plentiful, but they're very straightforward where you can just say to someone, you you've already got this or you're not going to catch anyone. So let's make this deal to help both of our teams. I think that's exactly right. Uh, in, in Tout American League, I've got a 30 stolen base lead, something like that. And I know that I'm going to trade somebody. Uh, uh, I have Julio Rodriguez, Jorge Mateo, Cedric Mullins. I think they're all 20 stolen bases already, you know. And I think I could tactically trade one of them to somebody else to push them up in the stolen base category above some of the guys I'm chasing in the overall. And maybe I could recover a, uh, you know, a power guy that would help me maybe move up three or four points in a couple of categories. And as I said, I don't think those opportunities really come up as often in shallower leagues. The only ones I play in don't allow trading because they're all on the NFBC platform. But even in leagues in past years that I played in, trading was much less important in in 15 and especially in 12-team mixed leagues. That's right. Yeah, because you could use the waiver wire to try to plug some of your holes. The other thing is, with, like you were mentioning with your team, um, you know, you can trade those speedsters knowing that the other people are never going to find a way to catch you um, because you can control where those, where you trade them. Right. And, and you can, you can figure out who you can trade them to, to make up the points, like you said, for you uh, on other teams that you're chasing. And in a mixed league, especially a shallow mixed league, everything would be so dynamic, much more dynamic where there'd be that variable of the waiver wire and, you can't project how the other players and the other teams are going to do as much the rest of the way. So um, in steals, even in a mix, like you can project it a little bit because there's certain players who really drive it, but, but it wouldn't be the case in say RBIs or runs scored because you just don't know who someone might find. Someone might find a great power hitter on the waiver wire. Someone will. It just depends which team does it. Speaking of trading, Fred, you said, and I don't remember where, whether it's something that you wrote at Yahoo or perhaps uh, on the Rotowire pod with Jeff Erickson, but somewhere or other, I saw you say uh, Kyle Schwarber 
looks like a pretty good trade target after he tied Aaron Judge and Mike Trout for the June lead in home runs, 11 home runs in June. Why would Kyle Schwarber be of added interest in that circumstance? Yeah, I've been trying to write articles uh, on the Yahoo platform lately that direct uh, people to make certain purposeful trades for categories, right? Like we were just talking about in the summer. And Schwarber sticks out as Anthony Rizzo's another one um, that stick out as home run and RBI sources, well, home run sources especially, um, without having the elite batting average and overall profile. So if, if you look at the home run leaders in baseball, most of them are hitting like 270, 280, 300, whatever. They're going to cost you Max Scherzer or something like that on the trade market. Whereas Schwarber, you get the power, but it's a low batting average. So the person who has Schwarber may be up in the power categories, but maybe down a bit in the batting average category. And maybe you can offer that person, might be addition by subtraction for them, where they say, well, if I get rid of Schwarber and put in someone in his spot with a high batting average, I can move up that way. And this guy's also adding in a starter. It's harder to make. I think it's just a lot more manageable to try to convince someone to trade you Kyle Schwarber right now than it is to convince them to trade you Mike Trout. Yeah, I bet that's uh, just generally the case, no matter what the circumstances are, unless you're throwing something else in. Uh, Another part of it I thought when I was looking at it is, is there an advantage to you as somebody who's trying to acquire uh, Kyle Schwarber that some of the people who have him on rosters might not realize that his total season home run production is not as impressive as some other players, but the 11 home runs in June kind of disguise the fact that he's on a, on a heater and maybe has turned a corner in some way. And somebody looks at Kyle Schwarber and says, oh, I don't know how many home runs he has right now, but since so many of them were packed into one month, is the coverage of that fact going to offset the fact that he doesn't have as many home runs as people might think? based on his, uh, based on his year to date levels. Yeah. I'm always trying to, to look at, because I write a fair amount of trading articles. I'm always trying to look at different angles related to trade offers. And one of them is for sure is to, to find players who, you know, and now Schwarber hit two more home runs last night. So he's getting harder and harder to acquire. But, uh, when I wrote it a few days ago, he's a little easier to acquire maybe, but, um, it's always trying to find out, find like angles with players where maybe someone, like you said, has played better recently than maybe the person who owns them realizes, but their stats are still disguised by some other things that happened early in the year. Charlie Morton's a great example of that. He's been lights out pitching lately, but because he started the year poorly, he still has an ERA in the fours. So maybe in a Yahoo league, there's a, there's room there for someone to make a reasonable offer for Charlie Morton. The person who has him looks at his season long data when they're reviewing the trade and thinks, ah, his ERA is like whatever it is, four, two, seven or something like that. And you know, his whips this, okay. He's not that special yeah, okay, I'll trade him and doesn't recognize that in the past month, he's been terrific. And, you know, there's a good reason to believe that can continue going forward. So I'm always trying to look for angles that way where someone can maybe get a bit of an advantage in trade talks. I don't know if you can do that in like the quote expert leagues. Like I think people are really sharp, but I always try to remember when I'm writing that I'm not, I'm not writing for the 1% 1% of 1% of people who play in expert leagues. I'm writing for the, the masses of people who just play in regular fantasy leagues and are trying to make trades with people who don't live fantasy baseball stats all day. Conversely, it seems like a guy like Schwarber, who's definitely on a heater, this might be an ideal time if you have him on your roster to look to see if somebody wants to acquire him because the price may be inflated based on the the hot streak that he's on and the, it's fairly well publicized. And uh, even if they're 
reading the odd fantasy baseball article by guys like you at Yahoo, then they think, well, wait a second, this is not who he is. The power metrics may not back up this kind of performance. It's a heater. And there's no better time to sell a player, I think, than when he's uh, halfway through a heater or three quarters of the way through a heater. Of course, we never know. He could be on a six-month heater, and then you're going to lose out. But it looks like an opportunity to sell high sometimes when a guy has a real run of success like this. John Birdie may be another example. John Birdie is a great example, for sure. And sometimes I'll write about players and talk that they just actually should be traded. It, it, not to say that you should trade for them or trade them away, but John Birdie perfectly fits the example of someone who actually just should be traded. The person who got him just surged in their steel standings they probably want to get off now before he loses playing time or potentially stops stealing bases as much and then there's other teams in the league that maybe need to take a chance on birdie because they need the steals bump and they're doing well in other categories so he's just someone for example who should be traded um in a lot of leagues and, and i agree with you that trading guys who are on a heater is often a good plan i recently wrote that maybe looking to trade dylan cease could be a good plan because, for example, Cease up until late June hadn't allowed a run in June. Now, Cease is amazing at striking out batters, and he's a really good pitcher. You'll get a ton for him on the trade market. Probably a lot of people don't realize, I believe, as of yesterday, he led the majors in walks this year. So there's a hole in his game. Now, he's, he's striking out batters, and that's causing him to, you know, to get around that. But if you could trade Cease at the value of like a really high-end ace, and you might be able to. He's in the, in the top of the of strikeout leaders. He's been, on, he's been pitching great lately as far as not giving up runs. He's very valuable. But you might be able to there – is, there is a potential there for regression if these walks catch up to him at some point in the second half. So um, I think definitely trading players on a heater, especially if that player isn't Aaron Judge, Jordan Alvarez, if it's not a true you know, superstar without holes in their game. And with track records of consistently hitting a lot of home runs or, or demonstrating an awful lot of power, Schwarber's a pretty good at power hitter. We know that he's been around, but not at this level. Certainly not. If you figure 11 home runs in a month is a 66 home run in a year pace, and I don't think anybody believes that Kyle Schwarber is, you know, the next Roger Maris or, you know, Bonds or Sosa or somebody like that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Fred Zinke from the Rotowire podcast and Yahoo Sports. And on the Rotowire pod, Fred, you and Jeff Erickson talked about both having missed out on Vinny Pasquantino by minutes in Jeff case. And my ears perked up when I heard that, because it sounds like you're that he, and I think you're in the same league are playing in a league where waiver claims are settled on a first come first serve basis. And I thought, wow, do they still do that? Surprised me. I hate it. Um, I hate it, but I love the people in the league. It's the Yahoo friends and family league. Scott Pianowski runs it. I love Scott. He's an awesome guy. I, it's, I have a lot of friends in the league. I'll always be in the league. That being said, I hate the first come first serve waiver wire model it is the default yahoo model so we use it um which i get like it's a the, the purpose of that league is to kind of model the regular yahoo settings um but it doesn't work well for me at all um i have another job i have two kids they have a lot of sports i'm driving a lot i never get the hot prospect i never i also go to bed like i go to i go to sleep at a decent hour and i live on the east coast i never get the the eighth inning guy after a closer blows a save in spectacular fashion i never get those guys i don't like it i don't like the idea that you can get ahead in fantasy sports by being glued to your phone or your computer and just refreshing twitter all day and being the first one to see a, a player's been promoted i don't love that um 
I just don't think that's what this game's all about, but I guess the game can be about different things to different people. It just doesn't work for me. But like I said, I'll always be in the league and I do enjoy it. But every year I have the same problem. I never get any of the prospects. I never find the hot closers, new closers. I wondered if Yahoo does it that way because setting things up so that the guy who does the best is the guy who keeps following the news certainly right. might work well for Yahoo, you know, because the, and the guy who checks the site more often, right? Yeah, sure. And a lot one. of traffic. If you, if yes. you're getting a guy who's hitting the site every 12 minutes or so to make sure he's not missing out. So maybe it's a good business model. I don't know. I don't like it either. I, I can I'm old enough to remember back in the day when I was playing uh, AL four by four in a home league, that's how we set it up. Cause there was no other way to do it. Really. Nobody thought of fab and none of the, none of the sites had fab options. So if you wanted to do it, you had to do it manually, even once they did invent it. But we had this really arcane system where one of the guys in the league every year was, was given a answering machine basically. And we paid him to, to hook up to Saskatel with a second line. And we would just phone in our moves to this answering machine and whoever got there first got the player. It was that simple. And, and, uh, nobody liked it. And eventually we were a real early adopter of fab, partly because our stats provider enabled it, which was a real plus. So, uh, there's a lot of reasons to do it, but leaving aside the mechanisms of acquiring Vinny Pasquantino, you and Jeff compared him to some other rookie call-ups of note recently. What did you guys decide about his spot in the pecking order? Yeah, we both liked his potential. Now, Jeff went out on the Sunday and paid a lot and got him in some NFB, not not a lot, like an appropriate amount, I guess, 150, things like that, and got him in some NFBC leagues. I didn't, um, maybe because I'm cheap. But um, I, I think when you look at his minor league profile, there's definitely plenty of power and he keeps the strikeout rate down. And as far as a rookie coming up, if you see those two things together, that gives him a pretty good chance for success. Now I'm a little wary of the Royals. They've, they've messed around sometimes with some, not Bobby Witt, but some of their other prospects they've messed around with their playing time a bit. So let's see how often he plays, but I think he's a worthy gamble at this point in the season, if you need powers. And I do like him more. We talked about him compared to Juan Yepes. I probably like him as much or maybe a little more than Yepes. I do I do like Yepes. I like him a little more than Nolan Gorman because Gorman doesn't play against lefties. Like I'd like to see the potential to play every day and Pasquantino has that. So I, I think he was worth it for people who did pick him up or he will prove to be worth it. I just wasn't one of those people. You mentioned Pasquantino's strikeout and walk rates in the minors were exceptional. Uh, how well do you generally expect those two metrics to project into the major leagues? Actually, it's interesting that that we're talking about that t- this today because Jeff Zimmerman ran a Fangraphs article just yesterday, um, just kind of out of the blue about that, about how like your strikeout rate's going to rise when you come to the majors. The pitchers are better. Like it'd be highly unlikely that it doesn't rise. Um, and he was looking at different types of hitters and how much the strikeout rate rises with them. Um, you know, it's going to rise. It's going to rise a few percent. I believe his findings were that the guys who struck out a lot in the minors, it didn't rise too, too much in the majors, I guess, because they already strike out so much. Nowhere to go um, but up down. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, if you already have a 30% strikeout rate in the minors, like, where's it going to go? Uh, well, you're just not going to last in the majors at that point. Um, but yeah, when I'm, when I'm trying to look for sources of batting average and power together, I, I like to find players when they get called up that can deliver me two of the three of power, speed, or batting average, right? I, like I'm looking for two out of the three and um, guys like Pasquantino aren't going to give you speed. So it's got to be power and batting average. Um, I mean, he did have a few steals in the minors, but he's, he's a first baseman. He's probably not going to give you a lot of steals. So, um, so I, I typically look at strikeout rate 
um, to try to figure out what I think their batting average might be like in the majors. It doesn't always work, but at least it gets me maybe going in a, the right direction. And, and so far, he's walked more than he struck out in the majors. Pasquantino has, although it's really early. He also hasn't had many hits so far. No, that's right. Uh, I've noticed that he had more walks than strikeouts early on. but And I, I should say he also hits the ball hard when he hits it, uh, which is a plus, I think, well, like two-thirds of his balls were classified as hard hit 95 miles an hour or over. But he sure seems to be beating it into the ground with monotonous regularity. I think his average launch angle is like nine degrees or something like that. And two-thirds of his batted balls are 20 degrees or lower, which means they're not line drives. He's, he's hitting them on the ground somewhere. And they're almost always pulled, so he's a he's a victim of the shift a lot of the times as well. I think every at-bat he's had in the major leagues, I checked this the other day at Baseball Savant, every at-bat he's had, he's had a full pull-side shift. They're not even tr- yeah. trying to pretend, and he's not making any effort to poke it the other way a few times, which you think would be a smart thing to do. Maybe some of these hitters just can't do it. I I don't know. Um, How long does it take for all of these metrics to settle out and we have a more confident idea of what a guy like Pasquantino is as far as a major league hitter goes? Yeah, unfortunately, I think it takes a couple of months and, and we don't, at least, and we don't have a couple of months sometimes and their team may not. I hope that's why I hope the Royals just let him play no matter how you're, you're right. He's beating everything into the ground right now. Um, but it's so early. And I think Julio Rodriguez is probably, hopefully he gives us like a lasting example. Like he was so bad in April and he stole bases in April, but at the plate, he was so ineffective in April and he was dropped in a lot of fantasy leagues. And I get it, especially shallower leagues, um, with small benches. Um, and then obviously he's been incredible since the beginning of May. And there are, there are a lot of people out there who are kicking themselves right now saying like, I had like a top five or top 10 player on my roster and I dropped them during April. So unfortunately I think it takes a couple months for some of this data to normalize or, or for us to get a real feel for these players. The hard part is, is you got to figure out what to do with them over those two months. Do you have them in your lineup? Do you have them on your bench? You can't carry them forever. Yeah. That's the frustrating part sometimes. And the team context matters too. I mean, we talked yeah. about Pascontino in Kansas City. You look at that lineup and you go, what are they going to bench him so that they can play uh, Ryan O'Hearn? You know, it doesn't even yeah. make sense. The guy's got a 560 OPS or something like that. It's not even a legitimate choice. And their, their team position in the scheme of things is also such that they have very little reason not to let uh, Pascontino have a full run to see, you know, kind of what they've got there. Can they rely on this guy for the next five years to play first and, and do some DHing, or are they going to have to keep looking? Maybe they they have another um, guy, uh, Prado, in Kansas City's organization. I think they moved him to the outfield or someplace else because they think Pascontino is going to have first base locked down. So I think you have a little more run, a little more confidence that that Pascuntino is going to run. In the course of comping Pascuntino to other first basemen, you said something about Luis Arise in Minnesota that I thought was well put. You said either you really need him on your team or you really don't. What did that mean? Yeah, he's just, I mean, he is contributing runs this year, which is, a new thing for him, which is great. Like he's scoring runs at a higher rate than he, he used to. They're hitting him lead off more often. Um, and he is actually getting on base better. Even for him, this 346 average he has so far this year is really high. Um, with, with Arias, um, you either need the batting average help, at, at which point he, he's essential to your team, or you don't. 
At which point, like, what are you doing with a guy who's got four home runs and two steals in the middle of the season in a mixed league? Like, why would you have him in a mixed league lineup? He's also his RBI totals low. Like, he probably won't get to 60 this year. Um, he will score, like, he could score 90 runs this year. So that's something. But you can get runs in, in other ways. So I, I think either he, he's another guy who should be one of the most traded players in the next month because on a, many of his teams, the team will be doing well in the batting average category and can probably afford to get rid of him for whatever, a hitter with a different profile or a closer or a pitcher or whatever. And in every league, there's probably a team that's in a big clump of teams in batting average who could grab a Raya's, who's leading the majors in batting average and his batting lead off and can help you more than anyone else and could maybe stomach having someone in their lineup who most weeks is not going to give you a homer or a steal. So he's just someone where, yeah, like I said, like in every league, there's a few teams who, who, who really need him, And then a few teams who definitely don't. And unfortunately he's probably often on the team that doesn't because he's already helped them. You're listening to baseball HQ radio, Patrick David with Fred Zinke from the Rotowire podcast, Yahoo sports. And you and Jeff talked on the pod about the very grim injury that Bryce Harper suffered. And you said, even after a little possibly good news about how long he'll be out, he's Still mostly a drop for you in NFBC-style formats with limited uh, reserve lists. Why the pessimism about Bryce Harper in this situation? I was I was really bummed, even though he said it in a positive way. But when he said, "I yes," just yesterday, uh, the quote came out, or he said uh, he vows to return this season. And I think he said that in a positive way, like, I'll be back this year. I took that as a very negative comment where I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're talking about whether or not you're even coming back this year. Like, from a fantasy perspective, I don't care if you come back this year. I want you back for, like, six weeks. Right. If you're back for six weeks, I'll wait. If you're going to be back for, like, two weeks at the end of the year, and you're going to pump your fist and be like, see, guys, I made it back this year. Right. Then I'm going to wish that I'd already dropped you because by then I'll be like, by then the damage has been done. You've been sitting on my bench for whatever, three months for two weeks. Like, no, thank you. I really think last year when Phil DeSalt dropped, it was a big deal. He dropped Jacob DeGrom around mid season on an NFBC main event team, a 15 team league. And it ended up being the right move. DeGrom didn't come back. But at the time, a lot of us were like, you are dropping Jacob DeGrom. Like, what if he comes back? And then Phil kind of reasoned. Like, well, if he comes back for like four starts, like maybe the first one's short because he just got back. And like, am I really going to hold him on my roster for, I know he's great, but am I going to hold him on my roster for two months for four starts or five starts or something? Or should I start using that roster spot to try to stream other players? Um, It just really got me thinking about some of these star players. Harper's different in that he's a position player, but it's holding him for all of July and August is tough. If you're thinking about a September return and then you don't know, maybe by then the Phillies are out of the race and they only play him part-time in September or they shut him down early because why not? Why not the race by then? So I, you can hold them, but there's an opportunity cost to using up that bench spot on him in leagues without, you know, large IL, IL, you know, availability. I remember that big debate that occurred when Phil dropped Jacob deGrom and, you know, my first thought was, this guy's an exceptionally good fantasy baseball manager, and his reasoning needs to be paid attention to. You don't have to agree with it necessarily, and your mileage may vary depending on what your team context is, what your league context is, what your rules are, all of those kind of things, but he's an expert. You know, he literally yep. is a very 
expert level player. And for that reason, I think he opened up a, a really important debate that we all should have been having maybe a long time ago about uh, long-term injuries like this. You mentioned some of the factors that go into a drop decision on a top player with a longer-term injury. What are they in brief? Yeah, I mean, obviously you're going to look at how long you're going to have him back for, what the prognosis is for as far as when he's going to return and how long he's going to be out for. Um, but I think on top of that, you're going to have to look at your team and how vital you think that player might be to you when he gets back. So, for example, I have an NFBC team that's great in hitting and terrible in pitching. I'm waiting on Andrew Heaney again because he's out again, but I really, really need p- pitching. Excuse me. I really need pitching, and there's not a lot on waivers, and so I'm waiting. If Andrew Heaney was a hitter on that team, I would have already dropped him because I just have a lot of hitting on that team. So I think you'll also have to think about that. You know, if it's a closer and you think, uh, you know, how tight do I think my saves race is going to be? And do I, is it worth waiting around? So I think those are the, probably the two variables. But I think one, the biggest one for me is just how, how long do you have to hold him for? And how long do you think you'll actually have him back? I was okay with, and it didn't, hasn't worked out great yet, for, with people who drafted an injured Tatis or an injured DeGrom at the heavy discounts, hoping for half a season of them. But now we're at a point where you're going to hold for what's the remaining season. You're going to hold Bryce Harper for, maybe 70% of it and get 30% from them. It may be worse than that. I think another part of the context is what do you expect from him once he is back for however long or short it's going to be? And that has a lot to do with the nature of the injury itself. So we know that, for instance, guys who have hamate bone and wrist injuries, even after they come back, we shouldn't really expect as much power as as we might ordinarily if it had been a toe injury or you know a, a, a rib injury or something like that, getting hit by a pitch, not a not an oblique injury. So you have to factor in, I think, the nature of the injury and how it's likely to affect what little time you're going to get with the player anyway at the end of the season. And then, as you said, what what incentive does the team have to play this guy? If they're fourth and going nowhere, why would they risk further injury to Bryce Harper? I think the smart play for them would be to say, there's the bench, grab a piece and, uh, you know, some sunflower seeds and we'll see it in spring training. How about a guy like Aroldis Chapman though, when, when he came back, another part of the, another part of the playing time situation and the role situation is, were the Yankees going to let him go back and be the closer given how well Clay Holmes has pitched. And there was a lot of speculation in the media and in the fantasy sports media about what Aroldis Chapman's role would be once he got back. And I still don't know that it's fully settled, although I don't think Chapman's looked really super great since he's uh, been back on the field. No, I know it's been the the perfect storm of trouble for Chapman in the sense that since he was out, like Holmes has done so well. Um, he's been the most valuable fantasy reliever so far this year in most uh, scoring systems. And then Chapman's looked terrible when he first <laughs> looked terrible when he first came back. So now I, I saw actually him Chapman being dropped in a lot of leagues. And I think I might be jumping on that train the next uh, fab period. So, but I mean, yeah, you, you also have to think about that for sure is uh, you know, what's the player, What's the player's role going to be when he comes back? Could he lose his role? Could he lose playing time, a rotation spot, things like that? And like you said, I agree with what you said about the nature of the injury, and that goes along with what the player provides. So, for example, if it's someone who drives a lot of his fantasy value through stealing bases and it's a lower body injury and you're worried that when he comes back he won't steal bases, then maybe you're holding him for nothing. You you know, Ozzie Albies could be an example of that. He's out with a fractured foot. 
um, when Albies can, now that's a bone, like hopefully it heals. He can run just as fast, you know? Um, but if, if you were worried that when he comes back, he's not going to steal bases. Now you're just getting a shell of what you drafted Ozzy Albies for, and maybe it's time to move on. So I think that's important to think about with players, with, with the position players, especially as well. And speaking of bullpens and manager discretion and choices and those kind of things, you guys also talked about Kenley Jansen's problems with his heart palpitations or however that works. And you said that manager Brian Snitker in Atlanta has a lot of room in making his bullpen decisions. How do you think that should have affected or should affect bidding on guys like A.J. Minter and Will Smith? Yeah, my guess on this, and I ended up, I think, being right, although I didn't grab him, I didn't pay for him in leagues, was that he would go with Will Smith because Will Smith got 37 saves for him last year. And so far that's been the case. He, Minter got a save, but then it's been Smith. Um, I felt like Smith was overpriced in a lot of my fab leagues. I felt like people were drafting him as though he was going to be the closer for a month or more. Um, Jansen's supposed to be back at the beginning of next week. This isn't an arm injury or something like that. If he has this heart situation under control, I'd assume he goes back to pitching effectively right away. He's dealt with it in the past. So I get it. Maybe if you have Jansen, that you were willing to put a little more on Smith just to cover yourself. I grabbed Minter for single digit bids in, in some thousand dollar leagues just to see, I mean, he's a good reliever. You could stream him. Smith. I wouldn't want in my lineup. If he's in closing Minter. You could throw in a 15 team lineup for a week and let him get you two or three scoreless innings, hopefully. And you know, maybe he gets another save before Jansen comes back. Could vulture you a win or two as well, being in yep. that high leverage role. I think that's that's something that people underestimate is the usefulness of a high leverage reliever on their bench to stream in. If there's a starting pitcher matchup you just don't like, you don't have to put in another poor starting pitcher or a substandard starting pitcher. Just plop a guy in for four innings that week, a guy like Minter or guys of that ilk, and pick up your innings and, and be satisfied with it. And don't take that big blast that you're going to get from starting a fifth starter in Colorado or in uh, Yankee Stadium. You said on the pod you'd rather have Adam Wainwright for the rest of the season than Sonny Gray, who just came back. What was your analysis of the Wainwright versus Gray situation? Yeah, that actually wasn't a shot at Gray at all, but more of a compliment to Wainwright. Um, I, I have I had some Wainwright last year. I have no Wainwright this year. I felt like it was just time for me to get off the train, which I guess it wasn't. And he's been awesome. Well, not awesome, but really good. Again, this season, um, he's still working fairly deep into games. He's got six wins so far. He's got a 326 ERA. Um, he's 40 years old. He's almost 41. Uh, like He'll be 41 by the end of the summer. Um, it's just remarkable. I felt like with Wainwright, like I didn't want to draft him, especially in the draft and holds, but I didn't want to draft him in case he just came out and looked his age this season and was just a colossal bust, like a five ERA doesn't even finish the season. I felt like my plan all along, my, my stat, my, my stance on Wainwright all along would be, you know, if he could get through the first six weeks or so fine, then I'd buy right back in and he's done that and beyond. So I'm bought, I've bought right back in. I don't see any reason to expect him to just kind of fall off a cliff in the middle of the season. He's always been really durable and a workhorse. Am I going to go, after Wainwright again next season, probably not. But for the rest of this season, now that he seems like he seems fine, I'm fully on board. It looks like he can do this for one more year. It's really remarkable. I find it very, very impressive. The Gordie Howe of uh, Major League Baseball he's turning yeah. into. I don't know if that he's going to be pitching at 50 like, oh, Satchel Page. So I'm thinking of, I yes. think was pitching it well into his 50s, but 
kind of as a marquee attraction as much as an effective pitcher at that time. Uh, Fred, this has been very interesting so far. We'll take a break. I got to do the National League and American League news with Nick and Ray, and I'll have you back in just a minute. We'll finish. Yep, sounds good. Can't wait. Fred Zinke writes for Yahoo Sports and appears weekly at the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports. Nick has the National League News. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to remind you about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's the Arsenal Report. Pitcher repertoire analyst Tanner Smith looks at changes in Charlie Morton's release points and pitch mix, as well as Jonathan Gray's three-pitch arsenal. The Arsenal Report, just one of the great resources available all the time to members of the team at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Having all kinds of internet trouble here in Waterloo, Ontario, which is kind of weird because Waterloo, Ontario is a big technical center. I don't know what's going on, but uh, you can't even get through to the cable company. So we're doing this uh, by mobile connection, and I hope that uh, that works uh, long enough to get us through this. But let's start in Los Angeles, where the Dodgers put outfielder second baseman Chris Taylor on the IL. He's got a broken foot. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today. What happens with Chris Taylor's playing time? Well, the only thing we know for sure at this point is that Taylor won't be back uh, before the All-Star break. Uh, Zach McKinstry, utility outfield second base, was uh, uh, activated from the IL to take his roster spot, but he's just one for seven for the year with Los Angeles. So uh, McKinstry's going to have to make the most of his chances and hit his way into playing time. The left-right platoon of Jake Lamb and Trace Thompson has been taking over for Taylor and will continue to get most of the vacated playing time uh, in left field until further notice. I guess this is going to be really important, Nick, if Chris Taylor comes back right away, then it's not that big a deal. But the Dodgers are reeling a bit on their offensive side with some underperformers. And Chris Taylor, I mean, he wasn't setting the world on fire, but he was getting the job done. And uh, all of a sudden, this Dodgers lineup doesn't look as overpowering as it did at the start of the season. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. Uh, Bookie Betts at least came back this week, and that, that certainly helps. But... Um... But you're right. Uh, the, the lineup doesn't look as overpowering as it was. Uh, Taylor was uh, was pl- was playing very well. It's always a very solid kind of guy to have in your lineup, and, and it will certainly hurt to have him out. And I know because of his positional versatility, he was kind of a prize in the not in the early rounds of any drafts, I don't think, but in sort of those mid early rounds. A lot of uh, fantasy managers thought, "Hey, Chris Taylor, not only a good player, but on a good team, and has that outfield second base eligibility, which can be really handy, especially in leagues like NFBC leagues or other leagues that have very limited um, roster flexibility because of uh, small reserve lists and no IL lists." So it's uh, ironic in a way that you know you get Chris Taylor to help you manage your way through uh, injured list problems, and he's on the injured list himself. Right, very definitely, yeah. Staying on the West Coast, uh, Evan Longoria in San Francisco has been sent to the IL, and the Giants recalled a catcher, Joey Bart, from the minors. Jake Crumpler covers the Giants for playing time today. What's going on with Evan Longoria and Joey Bart? 
Well, this could be really a major blow to the Giants lineup that's been struggling to find consistency uh, from its offense. And Ligori was diagnosed with a strained left oblique, uh, an injury that usually uh, carries a timeline of, of uh, missing at least a month, depending on the severity. A veteran third baseman has been one of San Francisco's best hitters this year, producing a 242-331-462 slash line. Uh, it's identical to his mark from, uh, from his renaissance a season, year ago. Uh, he'll likely be out through the All-Star break and into early August, and we'll need uh, Wilmer Flores and David Villar to fill in for him during his absence. Each of them will receive a slight bump in terms of our, our projected playing time uh, with a larger bump coming once we know uh, when Longoria will be back. The, uh, the corresponding move was Bart's return to the majors. We speculated on July 6th that Bart would be up with the team shortly when Kirk Casale landed on the IL with his own oblique injury, uh, leaving the big league club with exactly one, basically one and a half catchers. Austin Wyans plus uh, is one, and uh, Yerman Mercedes is a half. Uh, and Bart will take over uh, everyday catching duties until Casale returns, but he'll need to hit better than his 156 average for homers uh, uh, currently. So um, it's going to be going to be tough for San Francisco at this point. Uh, Bart will receive a large playing time boost as we expect him to remain with the team even after Casale returns. It's an interesting situation there. Uh, I'm I'm old enough to remember when Joey Bart was quite a hot uh, commodity, especially in leagues where you could roster minor leaguers as prospects. Uh, everybody was kind of angling to try to get Joey Bart, whether through their draft or in trades. He was always one of those guys that everybody wanted to get in a trade deal, and and very few people were willing to give him up, except in uh, in big deals. And Joey Bart hasn't been all that. No, he hasn't. He's not uh, not lived up to the hype very definitely. And certainly, uh, if you were looking for a young catcher, he would not be at the top of your list. In Cincinnati, uh, the Reds placed right-hander Tyler Molly on the 15-day IL. Apparently, he's got some what they're calling shoulder irritation. Uh, Tom Kephart covers the Reds for playing time today. How serious is this for one of the few bright spots in the Cincinnati rotation and, in fact, in the Cincinnati lineup period? Molly was quoted as saying he expects to return immediately after the All-Star break, meaning he's likely to miss two scheduled starts. Cincinnati needed a replacement starter for their July 7th doubleheader. Uh, with five other healthy starters, Cincinnati will be able to cover Molly's other start without any rotation disruption. Yeah, but there's a difference between uh, covering the slot and getting performance out of the slot. And uh, looking at that Reds rotation in general, this doesn't look promising for Cincinnati in what has been a very disappointing season. Cincinnati also had some good news, however. They did activate another Tyler. Outfielder Tyler Naquin rejoined the club. Uh, Again, Tom Kephart covering the story for playing time today. How does uh, Naquin fit into the Reds outfield situation? Tyler Naquin returns to his role as a primary Cincinnati right fielder, although he's likely to platoon uh, sitting versus left-handed pitching. He's missed a lot of time due to injuries, uh, limiting his production, which uh, has not not matched his uh, 221, uh, 2021 career pace. At this point, uh, 255 batting average, five homers, 22 RBIs. Uh, so Naquin is kind of, a, a, a at this point, a $9 ball player. Might do a little better than that over the rest of the season. But that's uh, kind of middle line of ball players, what we would expect from him. Might be a few bags there if you're kind of in the middle of a stolen base category where there's some points to be had. You could look at Tyler Naquin. In the past, he's been a reasonably decent stolen base guy, has he not? Uh, in the past, he has. Uh, it's not, not so much this year, although five stolen bases a year ago, uh, none in 2020, 
four in 2019, three so far in 2022. So yeah, three, four, five bags, uh, something like that might be there for the rest of the season. If he's got three this season in uh, basically a third of a year, or not even, maybe he was on his way to something bigger. I guess that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, in Chicago, boy, Kyle Hendricks has been a real disappointment. Right-hander has not pitched well all year, and now he's on the IL with a right shoulder strain. He was disappointing. What's the upshot in the Cubs rotation, which is rapidly looking like it's falling to tatters? Yeah, well, you know, Kyle Hendricks at this point, uh, we've seen skills decline this year, a uh, second straight season of subpar production, um, really a, a virtually unrosterable in all formats. So with multiple starters sidelined by injuries, the Cubs rotation will continue to be a really a short-term mystery, and we'll have to see who they throw out there from day to day. Boy, that's something when you, you get an injury report at Baseball HQ and they just throw their hands up and say, we don't know either. So I guess the advice to fantasy managers here is look somewhere else just in general. I think very definitely avoid the Cubs rotation at the moment. Earlier this season, Nick, we talked about Eddie Rosario in Atlanta, and he had a very unusual health situation. He was having blurred vision in his right eye, and finally they put him on the 60-day IL because he had to have surgery to fix this vision. I don't know if that also included, you know, that uh, LASIK type of deal where they actually fix your eyesight, but he's back uh, in Atlanta. They sent Mike Ford to AAA. He's a first baseman. Uh, Jake Crumpler covering the story for playing time today. Uh, what do we expect from Eddie Rosario and his brand-new eyeballs? Yeah, finding back with the team and take over the majority of playing time in left field, and the eye was definitely hampering him uh, as the, he was slashing just 0.68. That's 0.68 for a batting average, 163, 0.91 in his first 49 plate appearances before landing on the IL. Uh, with Adam Rival still on the roster, the Braves will likely go with a strict platoon with these two, especially considering that Duvall has struggled all year and isn't, doesn't deserve more than 30 to 40% of the playing time. So uh, Rosario should be a, a good one to have back if his eyes indeed fixed and, and ready to roll. And what we got on, on this so far since he'd been back is, uh, I think, three for 10. Something like that. So better than he was doing beforehand. Pretty small sample, I have to say. But yeah, Eddie Rosario, I'm sure he was dropped in pretty much every league that anybody had him in, unless they have unlimited IL slots, because uh, 60 days is a long time to wait. And then there's all the uncertainty about eye surgery and um, the expectation that things might not go well right at the start. Uh, Eddie Rosario seems like a guy, Nick, if he was available in my free agent pool, I'll be looking this weekend because I think I might, I might throw a small bid in there hoping that uh, nobody trusts him. Yeah, I'd be checking as well. I mean, this is a guy that's got some, uh, uh, got a, a decent history. So uh, 14 home runs last season, 13 home runs in 2020, 32 home runs in 2019. So uh, a guy that could be fairly useful uh, if he's back to normal once with with his eye repaired, hit his first home run, I believe, on Wednesday night. 32 home runs, that was in the happy fun ball year, so we have to discount that a bit. But certainly those other ones, if you prorate them out, you're talking about a solid mid-20s home run performance, which could mean we're right about at the halfway point now. So I wouldn't be surprised if he hit uh, 11, 12 home runs the rest of the way. Yeah, that's what I would, I would be... Uh be thinking we, we might get from him uh, this uh, currently. And we're projecting 11 home runs, 34 RBIs, 260 batting average uh, for the rest of the season. 
Well, you could do worse, that's for sure. In Pittsburgh, they uh, activated outfielder Ben Gamble. Gosh, it seems like he's been on the IL forever. And uh, infielder Yoshi Tsutsugo, and they optioned uh, utility player Tukupita Marcano. Boy, Tsutsugo, Tukupita Marcano, this is not a transaction that was made for podcasting, that's for sure. And uh, infielder Hoy Park also goes down. Uh, what's the latest on the Pittsburgh lineup with all of these changes? Gamble returned and was inserted into the Tuesday night lineup uh, immediately. He'll occupy one of the outfield spots on most nights, along with Brian Reynolds and uh, Jake Suwinski. Uh, the, the playing time loser is Bly Martis. Uh, he'll revert to being a reserve outfielder. Sutsugo so uh, has underperformed in 2022, two homers in 113 at-bats compared to eight and 144 at-bats in 2021. He got the nod at first base on Tuesday night pushing Josh Vamita to second base for that one day anyway, and uh, Michael Chavis to the bench. So uh, Van Meter and Chavis will see at bats at second base, as will Diego Castillo, who has six home runs over the past month, with, but with a 151 batting average. Likely to be safe to avoid all these players until one of them emerges, uh, but Gamble's pretty a, a good guy to look at. A fairly solid on-base percentage. Uh, just a, a round, been all-around kind of solid ball player at this point. So of all of those guys, Gamble's the one to take a look at if he's available in your league. Also in Pittsburgh, the Pirates have been rumored for weeks now to be setting up trade opportunities. Of course, they're going nowhere, so this is the time of year when we start looking for uh, teams in that situation to trade some of their better players looking for prospects and and lower-priced guys. And certainly one big outperformer that they've had in Pittsburgh is closer David Bodnar and uh, wouldn't be surprised to see him go. And the question is, who gets the closer role if Bodnar leaves town? And Dan Marcus's coverage of the National League Central in playing time tomorrow suggests there might be a bit of a dark horse candidate for saves should Bodnar be handed his walking papers. What's going on in that bullpen? Bodnar is, uh, is far from a certainty to be dealt. He's under team control through 2026. So that gives the team some time to uh, to hit a continuing cycle before they uh, the salary goes up, and he, 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 they have to get rid of him. Chris Stratton appeared to be next in line if uh, Bodnar was injured or traded. At one point this season, appeared to be splitting the closer role. But since then, he has struggled from a results perspective and has seen key indicators such as strikeout rate, 21% strikeout rate uh, drop, and has allowed opposing hitters to reach base at a 298 clip. He's particularly struggled of late, allowing at least one run in five of his last nine appearances to uh, inflate his ERA to 5.29. Uh, BPV of 107, XERA of 410 indicate things will improve, though his role as the team's setup man could uh, realistically be in jeopardy. In contrast, Yuri De Los Santos has impressed in the last five to six weeks since he was recalled from AAA Indianapolis. His indicators have been strong, 25% strikeout rate, 55% ground ball rate, uh, immediately been thrown into a high leverage roles, one point. One one uh, leverage index. Primary blibberish on his profile has been the long ball. 1.4 home runs per nine, 15.4 home runs, four run per fly ball percentage, though his XERA still sets at a respectable 3.59. So Dilo Santos is a prime candidate to speculate on as a source of saves in deeper leagues this season in the event that Bodnar gets moved. And he will be a name to consider in future seasons, regardless of uh, where, where Bodnar is. But of course, uh, you, you always have that question of how many how many saves is the Pittsburgh bullpen going to get? I was just going to suggest that exact thing, Nick. Uh, 
well, I guess if you're completely desperate for saves, it might not be a bad play to make, but there's two things going on here. First, they're not going to be that many saves because there's not going to be that many wins. And second, uh, there's a couple of blemishes you mentioned in that profile. And the one that really jumped out at me was that home run rate. 1.4 home runs per nine innings is uh, a little bit high for a closer. And it's one of those things that will really cost you the manager's trust in a hurry. If you go in there and you have a save situation in the ninth inning and bang, you give up a home run and you lose, that's the kind of thing I think that sticks in the manager's memory and uh, certainly impedes your likelihood of being uh, holding on to the job in the longer term. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that would be certainly be a concern uh, anytime you would uh, would get thrown into the ball game. But uh, BPV so far one twenty three, and that's certain. That's certainly good enough to be for for a closer. We're projecting a BPV of one thirty nine for the rest of the season. So uh, Dilo Santos may be worth keeping an eye on, certainly at this point. Um, and I've, I've noticed that we're projecting an ERA of 1.61 for Dilo Santos for the rest of the season. Uh, so if he's out there on your waiver wire, maybe a guy worth looking at. 161 ERA plays, that's for sure. Nick, thanks a lot for helping us out and getting through the technical difficulties of a, a big internet outage up here in Canada. So uh, we'll talk to you again next week. I hope things are better for us then. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, it's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday, PD. Nothing happy about Friday today for us. Our internet is out from coast to coast on the Rogers system, which is the biggest one, and there's all kinds of shenanigans going on. You you can't use an ATM in a lot of places. There's no, the, the equivalent of Venmo up here is down and not working, and it's a nightmare. And of course, people are heading to mobile data in droves and that's slowing that system down to a crawl too. So uh, you just never know how much you depend on the internet till you don't have it, don't you think? Yeah, I guess Canada can only be utopia for 364 days a year. <laughs> yeah. Well, all of winter, we can also remove from the utopia equation as well, I think. Let's start in Chicago. The White Sox, Eloy Jimenez is finally back from the IL. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Jake Berger is out. There's a bit of a playing time squeeze going on here. How is it going to get resolved in Chicago? Yeah, the, very good news to see Eloy back. And the, the loss of Berger is mitigated. Uh, you know, He had been playing okay, uh, filling in for Yohan Moncada, but Moncada's back to handle third base at least. So seems like a net positive for the White Sox. Uh, Jimenez started and left on Wednesday. Uh, he was batting sixth. I did note, uh, you know, earlier in the week or maybe last weekend that he didn't really seem like he was producing much on his rehab assignment. Uh, I don't know how much to read into that, but uh, he obviously is going to reassume left field. They haven't had much luck trying to fill in for him. Obviously, we've talked before about the attrition all over the White Sox lineup, re really, but even those guys who are in the lineup, haven't been producing as much. A.J. Pollock has been pretty disappointing. Gavin Sheets has been filling in recently with Adam Engel out. Uh, he, Sheets hasn't been much better. He's hit 220 with five homers in 175 at-bats. He's been over in right field, so now I guess Sheets and Pollock more get to share right field with Jimenez taking over and left. Uh, Engel is still working around more of a speed threat than a power threat. Uh, but 
you know, certainly this lineup needs a little, it has been lacking some thump, and they're hoping that Eloy is going to provide that. And I presume we're expecting Andrew Vaughn to take up all or most of the uh, DH at-bats? Yes, I think that's right, except for the times when, uh, you know, Yosemite Grandal gets some uh, appearances there, too. Certainly with the, uh, you know, compared to some of these other guys, like Sheets and Pollock that we're talking about, Vaughn has been less of a disappointment. He's been, you know, the power hasn't been robust. I think he's only got eight homers, but he's been flirting with 300 all year. So, uh, you know, he's certainly not in, Vaughn's not in any danger of losing playing time to these, uh, to this collection of uh, struggling outfielders. Is it a case, Ray, where uh, Sheets and Pollock are going to have to try to sort of battle it out to see who ends up getting more playing time than the other guy, or is it going to be a case where they kind of just share it? Yeah, I think they're gonna. There's a battle there, and certainly, you know, the White Sox, as I just said, are looking for thump. So if one of them gets hot, we could certainly see them, uh, you know, t- take a lead in a you know what is starting out as a job share here. But I would certainly think that uh, Luis Robert and Eloy are going to be entrenched in the lineup. So, you know, that Vaughn is a fixture at the DH spot as well. Then, yes, sort of by definition, there's only one spot for Sheets and Pollock, and they may start out sharing it. But I would think the door is at least ajar for either one of them to claim the lion's share of that right field gig by, you know, just producing the plate. Down in Houston, they got what looked like some good news at first, Ray. They got Jake Odorizzi back from the IL, and he got back into the rotation. I happened to see most of his first time back. He didn't look that sharp. So uh, what does Jock Thompson, our analyst there, think is going to happen in the Houston rotation? Yeah, it's interesting because the rest of this rotation has been going just so well, especially with the recent emergence of Christian Javier, who's had a couple of... uh, massive strikeout games in the last couple of weeks. This rotation is just so stout. You know, Framber and Verlander and Luis Garcia and Javier and uh, you know, even Jose Urquidy Ur- Ur- has been okay. So there was not a pressing need for Rizzi to jump back in here, but he was ready, so they put him back in, and they're not demoting anybody from the rotation. They're going to go with a six-man at least for a little while here, uh, you know, probably you know, looking toward the All-Star break. So uh, you know, a couple of turns through a six-man and give everybody an extra day and, you know, back off the innings and pitch counts a little bit. Uh, you know, sort of give everybody sort of a, a mid-season breather is what Odorizzi is going to enable them to do. But, uh, yeah, like you said, Odorizzi had some really bad results, you know, very early in the season. I remember through, I think, the month of April, he had more walks than strikeouts. But he had sort of figured things out uh, in two or three starts before he landed on the IL with that uh, with that leg injury, as I remember that happened in Boston, uh, and everybody thought he blew out his Achilles because he kind of was running off the mound to go cover first base and just took a uh, took a nasty nasty spill. spill. But turned out the Achilles was okay, and uh, I mean he still missed you know six weeks, but uh, he he had been throwing well when he got shut down. So yeah, like you said, that first outing back against the Royals was a little bit rocky. But, uh, you know, if he finds that form he had before he went on the IL, he's still an asset to this rotation. 
could be one of those situations where in NFBC style teams and anywhere where reserve lists are pretty short and there's no IL, I bet a lot of uh, fantasy managers might have dropped Jake Odorizzi, so he might be somebody you can look at this weekend, assuming he's back in the free agent pool. Would you be interested at a reasonable price, shall we say? Yeah, I think that's right. He probably did get dropped in a lot of places, and I think I would be interested. You just have to know what you're picking up in, the, in cases like this, right? Uh, Odorizzi certainly is not a strikeout artist. You know, Looking at his game log, I think he only had more than four strikeouts in a start once all season, so that's not exciting. But you know, what is exciting is the team context here. You know, Like I said, it's a good rotation. He's part of, you know, he, it doesn't doesn't necessarily help him that Justin Verlander's on his team on nights he pitches, right? But, you know, there's a good bullpen behind him, obviously a good offense, and a pretty good division to pitch in with, you know, some really struggling teams like not just Oakland, but even, you know, Seattle, Texas, the Angels, all being also rans and, you know, barely, you know, I'm not sure any of them are even over 500 right now. So, you know, there's a there are a lot of tasty matchups within the AL West for the Astros. So, yeah, if you, I haven't looked at their schedule in detail, but if you find a stretch where, you know, he's going to have four starts over three weeks and a couple of them are at home and all of them are against the West or something like that, then, yeah, that, that would get pretty interesting to me. I know we always advise people not to chase wins, but I think the advice should allow for some situations like this where you have a capable pitcher, if nothing more, but he's in such a great team context that you really do have to kind of give him a bit more of a nod than you would say if Jake Odorizzi were pitching in Oakland. Despite the ballpark, it's just a bad team going nowhere. You know, they're they're in tough, but boy, oh boy, Houston's just rolling right now, and there's no reason to expect that they're going to slow down any of course, Odorizzi's going to have to pitch and pitch well, but if he does even a median job, I think he's going to stay in there, as you said, at least till the All-Star break and maybe after because Houston is clearly aimed at the at the playoff round at this point, we have to believe. And so they must be thinking already, how are we going to keep the innings down? How are we going to keep the pitch counts down? And maybe Jake Odorizzi filling in as a sixth starter on Houston during the regular season will mean he doesn't have to during the during the uh, postseason. I think you're exactly right. I think the Astros have to be thinking that, and that's a you know that's a pretty attractive piece of Odorizzi's value to them. They don't want Odorizzi starting a playoff game, right? If they get to that point, something bad has happened. But him starting 15 games between now and the end of September will keep Garcia and Verlander and Framber with more pitches in their arm for October, which very much is what they want. So the, the six-man rotation in that sense makes sense. And also, you know, the other thing is compared to some other teams that are not, you know, are struggling with this, you know, newly enforced 13-pitcher limit because they are not getting length from their starters. The Astros are getting length from all of their starters. So, the, you know, even the, you know, short quote-unquote seven-man bullpen is not taxed here because, uh, you know, the six starters are not, you know, there are not six starters who can't get out of the third inning. There's six starters who are, you know, pitching into the sixth and beyond with regularity. Yeah, that's true. And 
also a lot of their relievers get out with minimal wear and tear uh, as I'm watching it, especially when they're playing against those weaker teams. So uh, it looks like Houston is setting up well as a playoff team, which is nowadays because the playoffs are so much more a part of what goes on. They run longer and deeper into October and maybe even into November that teams with aspirations need to be thinking about that. And I don't think we're talking about anybody on the Yankees today, Ray, but I bet the Yankees are starting to look at that. You start hearing their name in trade rumors and you think to yourself, what what would they be interested in trading for? They're set. But I think they would probably not mind having another starting pitcher in their lineup for the same exact reasons. Yeah, that's exactly right. And not only that, but the other thing that we haven't really processed yet is the uh, you know the new playoff format when we get there and the top two seeds, which are going to be the Yankees and Astros, unless something changes dramatically, are going to have a bye while the other the three, four, five, and six teams have to play a three-game series. So these guys are also going to have you know five days off at the end of the regular season before they have to play their first playoff game, which is going to you know it's basically a free pass one through the rotation, right? Your uh, you know your number three starter is going to get probably you know, eight or nine days off between the uh, the last day of the regular season and the first playoff game. So there's a, you know, there's a legit advantage to not just winning the division, but being one of the top two seeds. And the Yankees and Astros are, you know, practically on cruise control for that right now. It might be a little too early to talk about Minnesota having ironclad playoff aspirations, but we have to believe that they have some playoff aspirations and they've been messing around a little with their rotation, but they can't ever seem to get everybody back at the same time, they have this Josh Winder was pretty good there for a while in uh, late April, early May. And then all of a sudden he couldn't get anybody out. They sent him down. Uh, then they, uh, he had an injury. He was activated, sent back down. And now he's been recalled. And I believe he was subbing for Chris Archer for a start. Uh, what's the latest intel on the rotation in Minnesota? What the heck is going on there? Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well. It's kind of just a revolving door at the back end, right? You know, there was one, I seem to recall like a month or six weeks ago, there was one period where it looked like they might also get to the point the Astros are at where they were going to have six guys and they thought they might go with the six-man rotation. But then, as you said, uh, you know, Winder got hurt and, you know, Sonny, before Sonny Gray came back and Archer came in, but then Archer's... Uh, Archer's last start, I had picked him up in a week or two, and his last start on uh, a week or so ago against the Indians, after throwing pretty well for a couple of starts there, he went out and walked six and struck out two in four innings, and you could just tell that something wasn't right there. So not terribly surprising that he went on the DL. So now, you know, spin the fifth starter wheel and you're back to Winder. Uh, I would assume we're not going to see Archer until after the All-Star break. He he was diagnosed with... uh, tightness in his hip, which sounds like just a rest and hope it gets better kind of situation. So he gets a couple of weeks down, winders the fifth starter for, you know, the rest of the first half, I guess. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. It seems like in this particular rotation, you know, the, somebody falls down every week. So we'll see what happens next. And of course, it'll be interesting later on if Minnesota does find themselves in a playoff position, they might be going into it with a fairly weak rotation, assuming they don't manage to shore it up. Uh, when you look at all the guys who are in and out, back and forth, uh, none of them really stands out as somebody that you think to yourself, boy, if that guy just gets into the rotation and stays in it, they're they're set, because I don't think they're set at all. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, Sonny Gray, when healthy, is clearly the best starter in this rotation. But 
after that, it gets sketchy pretty quickly. Uh, you know, Joe Ryan missed some time. Joe Ryan's been a little bit up and down. Uh, his overall numbers for the season are good, and ERA just over three, but his expected ERA is more like four and a half. And then, yeah, you're quickly down to Dylan Bundy and Bailey Ober and Archer and Win- Winder, and Devin Spelter has been making some cameos in there. And, yeah, after Gray, I'm not sure there's anybody you're excited about starting a playoff game here. I don't know if the Mariners have playoff aspirations, but if they do, they got a bit of good news. First baseman Ty France was activated from the 10-day IL. The team sent down outfielder Marcus Wilson to AAA. Uh, I presume that Ty France just steps right back into the lineup and on they go? Yeah, I think that's right. He only missed, I think it was 12 days, uh, jumps right back in without a rehab assignment. It looks like they maybe cut the... They cut a corner on a rehab assignment by starting him at DH for a couple of days to, you know, sort of ease back into the lineup. But uh, he was, you know, you can understand why they were excited to get him back and rushed him back. He was hitting really well. He was hitting 316, 10 homers and 45 RBIs when he got activated. And, you know, let's keep in mind that while he was out, they picked up Carlos Santana. So now Santana, despite getting a lot of run in his first week or so in Seattle, now probably fades back into uh, you know, part of the DH equation here as France assumes the, uh, reassumes the everyday first base job. Yeah, that's what I thought. Actually, Carlos Santana looked like a new man when he got up to, to Seattle. He seemed to be hitting the ball better. He seemed to have a bit of pep in his step. It's kind of a shame that he gets this far and seems to be turning things around at least a little bit from what he was doing in Kansas City. And uh, all of a sudden, here's Ty France back, and then the handwriting is on the wall for Carlos Santana. He's going to have to keep doing something as a DH, and I don't know if he has... Uh, any of those DH first base splits, you know, some guys don't like DHing. They want to play and and hit and play defense and hit, I should say. And I wonder what uh, is the next step for Carlos Santana as a fantasy asset. Yeah, you know, it was funny because he picked it up not for all that long, maybe, maybe like two weeks before he ended up in Seattle. It's almost like Seattle was watching him and the minute he showed some signs of life, they said, oh, okay, okay, now we'll take him. Uh, but, you know, he hit 323 for the month of June and had carried that over in July so far. So for his last, you know, 85 at-bats, he's hitting well over 300. The power's not really there, only four home runs on the whole season. But, you know, he's, his trademark has always been a high walk rate, too. So, uh, you know, if when he's hitting over 300, that on-base percentage, you know, starts getting into the 450 range real quick. So, you know, a 450 OBP will help any lineup, including the Mariners. So... I'm guessing he's, uh, you know, as Jesse Winker finishes up his suspension this weekend, we'll probably see Santana stealing some more D8 at bats because of that. Uh, Kyle Lewis is out on a rehab, I believe, as well. So that'll further squeeze the D8 situation, you know, maybe as early as next week. But, uh, you know, if Santana keeps hanging up a 450 on base percentage, he's going to find his way into the lineup. That's for sure. He's always been a much better on-base league player in fantasy than a batting average player in fantasy, that's for sure. Uh, In Los Angeles, the Angels put Mike Lorenzen on the IL. He has a right shoulder strain, and I guess we're going to see some more rotation moving and switching and funneling around as we've seen with some of these other teams. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's a theme I I think I've made in every – uh, comment here on a on a transaction, but you know I think it's just the nature of where we are in the calendar that 
the all-star break ends up being sort of the gating factor or the best estimate for just about every injury at this point, right? Uh, and that, no, no different for Lorenzen. We're not sure how long he's going to be out. Maybe he's in the rotation if that uh, if that shoulder uh, tightness uh, clears up fairly quickly. Maybe he's in the rotation like the first turn after the break or something like that. But there are, you know, two, maybe three starts to deal with before the break, depending on where the actual Angels rotation sat. So it's, uh, it's Reed Detmers coming back up tonight to take the start in that turn. And then you figure, I guess if you do the math, there's one more start, you know, middle of next week, something like Wednesday that uh, he'll probably get another start again. And that gets you to the break. So I would expect to see Reed Detmers twice, then the all-star break. And then we see whether Lorenzo's ready to come back on the other side of the break. And if even if Detmers is pitching, we've talked about him before here on Baseball HQ Radio, Ray, and gosh, it hasn't been that great with Reed Detmers. No, there was that you know very high, high point of the no-hitter, uh, but then after the no-hitter, sort of everything went south, and I, th- you know, we covered that. I think he had, uh, you know, across, across maybe four or five, uh, across two or three starts after the no-hitter, he had more walks than strikeouts, I, if I recall correctly. Uh, before he got sent out. And then, uh, you know, the, the command has been a little bit better since he came back, but, uh, you know, throwing more strikes uh, has also been offset by giving up more home runs too, which is obviously not a positive development either. So, yeah, it, things are rocky for Denver's right now, and I would not, uh, unlike Oda Rizzi, I can't really make a cogent case for why you would want to go grab him off your waiver wire right now. And still another team with playoff aspiration, the Blue Jays, had some roiling going on in their rotation. They had to place Yusei Kikuchi on the 15-day IL with what they called a neck strain, and the neck strain might have been caused by him whipping his neck around looking at all the base hits flying by. Yeah, those jokes just write themselves. <laughs> <laughs> that was the joke that was going around up here anyway. Uh, Max Castillo recalled from AAA. Uh, what are we going to expect going forward with the Toronto Blue Jay rotation? Yeah, I don't, I don't think the Steel steps into the rotation directly, but you know they're 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 suffering some attrition now. You might see a spot start from the likes of Max uh, Castillo or you know Casey Lawrence, who's another multi inning relief type who's been soaking up some innings there. You know the problem, of course, is not only is Kikuchi on the DL, but Kevin Gossman hasn't pitched since that uh, that line drive off his leg, which I think was what last Friday or or uh, last Thursday night or something like that. So he's been out a week. They're hoping he can go this weekend on Sunday, uh, but you can e- sort of easily imagine that uh, that'll be a, a, an abbreviated outing for him. So they're really in a uh, sort of duct tape and bailing wire operation here until the All Star break as well, just trying to get everybody healthy it's not clear at all that Kikuchi will be back after the break but I think we can at least assume that Gossman will be okay by then so you know Castillo Casey Lawrence etc may get a spot start in you know sometime in the coming week but uh, I'm not excited about that one either no nor am I nor are most Blue Jay fans it's an interesting setup just the other day they had a game and they looked like they were running in Tampa style uh, opener model with a, I can't remember who it was, but somebody started and pitched an inning or an inning and a third or something. And then they went to a, a bulk guy and, and moved through the uh, batting order repeatedly doing that. And I wonder if that's a possible model for them as they look ahead, including 
maybe protecting guys like Lawrence and this uh, Castillo guy from having to go through the lineup multiple times. Yeah, exactly. And especially, you know, again, with the break coming and knowing that all your relievers are going to get, you know, five days of downtime there, you can, you know, you, you can, you can ask the guy, the guys in the uh, bullpen to carry a little bit of additional workload this week and stretch them out for, you know, a multi-inning relief appearance when they're typically a one-inning guy and not worry about, you know, long-term effects of that. So I would imagine that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the miss, missing innings are just going to get spread out among a lot of people is probably how this plays out. That sounds right. Uh, let's move on to Boston. Their rotation's in a bit of turmoil as well. Uh, Rich Hill got hurt. They skipped Michael Walker's turn, and uh, rookies seem to be pitching this whole week. And then they have a couple of guys close to coming back, assuming Chris Sale is not taking on a second career as a as a demo guy for a rehab company. <laughs> Yeah, I was picturing – it's exactly the right reference. I was picturing Sale on uh, Love It or Listed or Windy City Rehab or you know, whichever your favorite home improvement show is when they, uh, when they flip houses because he's definitely the guy you want to call to uh, take out your kitchen cabinets when they're getting replaced. He's, he clearly has that skill. And if there's ever a reality show involving tailoring going back. Yeah, exactly right. Um, but, yeah, you're right about the Red Sox rotation. It's uh, – patchwork is – probably doing uh you know doing a disservice to the quilting industry because it's been uh been pretty rough here like you said four rookies starting four straight days is some kind of uh ignominious record i think it's been uh josh winkowski against the yankees last night and brian bayou made his debut and uh this weekend i think we get connor Seabold and Tucker crawford against the yankees too uh which you can imagine is going to go well uh but you know there are better there is better news on the horizon. Like you said, sales should be back uh, for one start before the break. Uh, Nady Evaldi's not far behind him. I don't know if he'll get a start next week, but at bare minimum, he should be able to go right after the break. And it sounds like, you know, when skipping Waka with a tired shoulder or something like that, that sounds like it's a one-two start sort of deal. So after the break, you can envision a rotation of, Sale and Ivaldi and Pavetta and Waka and then you know maybe one of these rookies and that's a lot better than a rotation of four rookies. But as is the case with Toronto with Minnesota, uh, they've got to get to the break before they get to the other side of the uh, of the Rapids here, and uh, it's going to be a uh, going to be a tough slog. And it comes in a bad time because they're uh, they're in the middle of playing uh, fourteen straight games all against the Rays and Yankees. So it's a uh, not a time to be running the uh, Worcester Red Sox pitching staff out there. In Los Angeles, the Angels had uh, a guy who in early drafts, I think Tyler Wade was going a little earlier than we might have thought by ADP because he was just so darn versatile. I think he covered every position but catcher and, of course, pitcher, but uh, he's been DFA'd. He's been cut, basically, by the Angels who claimed Jonathan Villar off of waivers and called up a guy, Michael Stefanik, uh, is this the end of Tyler Wade? He'll probably pop up somewhere for exactly the reasons you mentioned. You know, he, you know, the other reason that he had attracted some late draft attention this spring is because he stole a pile of bases for the Yankees in the second half last year. And between the uh, the position versatility, the pinch running utility, that kind of thing, you can imagine him ending up on some team's roster. You know, maybe not before September, but I wouldn't be surprised if if that ends up with him on somebody's playoff roster too, just because, uh, you know, that's the kind of piece that a good team likes to keep around. 
Uh, but the Angels, you know, not being a good team, had you know sort of more pressing priorities to address, and they thought that swapping out Wade for VR, especially with um, you know Anthony Rendon out for the year, VR probably picks up a ton of at bats at third base. They're going to get David Fletcher back somewhere right around the All Star break too, which is probably what Stefanik is up for is to be the utility infielder until Fletcher comes back. We haven't seen Fletcher since uh, you know, maybe the first week of the season, so that, that'll be a, uh, a big development for them. But uh, Stefanik's probably here for the short term, but VR over Wade gets them closer to a, uh, I guess, a major league caliber bat at their base filling in for Rendon. When I first heard the news, I thought, well, I can see that maybe the Angels are starting to jettison some of the guys who are not going to be part of their future and trying to see what they have at the higher levels of the minor leagues. And then I heard they claim Jonathan VR, who just seems like exactly the wrong guy for a situation like that. But I guess they want to be competitive at least a little bit to try to sell some tickets. But I didn't see it. But it'll be interesting to see how VR does in Los Angeles. Uh, he's been offered around in one of the leagues I play in. Somebody claimed him off of waivers a week or two ago and immediately started offering him for trade, I think, because, hey, good news, he's going to be playing full-time. He's going to be out there running crazy and stealing bases all over the place and go back to 2019 when he had, what, 30 homers and 40 bags or 20 homers and 30 bags, something like that. I don't think it's going to happen, but stranger things have happened. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen either, but it also is a reminder that the uh, the upper th- those upper levels of the Angels minor league system that you were referring to are are pretty barren. So uh, you know, I I do think yeah. you know I, I saw some uh, you know Tal- you're in the Tal Warzale only right? Didn't he didn't he go for a a pretty penny there? He did, yeah, and that's one of the leagues where uh, I think it was Larry Schechter picked him up and uh, immediately started making yeah. trade offers that included uh, Jonathan VR. Yeah. I mean, I think the you know the best thing you could say about him is he's probably going to play every day. He is now the third baseman, and like we said in the minors, there's nobody behind him. So if he's healthy, he's going to get an opportunity. And you know, he's, VR has stolen a lot of bases on bad teams over the years, and maybe maybe, maybe there's one last gasp here. I don't know. Did you get a sense of where he was going to bat in the order? Going to be hard, kind of hard to say. Um, particularly, I'm mindful of Fletcher coming back. You know, they have that. Word Otani Trout one two three pretty well lined up, and then it gets scrubby real quick. I sort of have to imagine that Fletcher is going to go go into maybe the two hole and try to you know lengthen the top of that lineup a little bit. So I would imagine VR is going to you know if, if as this team gets healthy, I would imagine VR will settle into the six or seven spot. I was wondering, of course, if he might end up in the leadoff spot because uh, the they could push everybody back a slot there. And I, th- I thought Fletcher would for sure be going into the nine hole just because he's so anemic uh, power wise. But I guess we'll have to wait and see if VR does claim that top spot in the batting order. I think he gets a little more interesting because clearly they they would probably be sending him uh, to steal some bases more than they would if he was hitting sixth. Yeah, that is true. Um, you know, and maybe for that argument, maybe the nine spot is the best spot for him from a stolen base output perspective because you know I'm not actually sure they do want him running in front of Ward, Otani, et cetera. But if you put him down at the bottom and you know have Fletcher up at one or two, maybe that's a spot where he can take off more often. Finally, Ray in Cleveland, they got back a couple of guys, uh, James Karinchak and Oscar Mercado. Uh, 
Oscar Gonzalez and Anthony Ghost were injured. Ghost is a pretty interesting story this year, I think. And then Mercado, they waved, and he ended up uh, somewhere else I saw the other day. I, does, I don't remember where, but a lot of things going on in Cleveland. Yeah, I forget where it was. If it was Pittsburgh or somebody else who claimed Mercado for five minutes, um, but then he got released again, and when Gonzalez got hurt, the Indians picked him up. Uh, obviously not a huge endorsement for Mercado. The the Indians didn't want him a week ago, but now they want him again. But they're probably not going to throw him in there too often. Bad news for Gonzalez, who actually was somewhat productive in an otherwise not-so-productive Indians outfield. Uh, and, you know, a bad break for Ghost, too, because like you said, he's been an interesting story. You know, converted outfielder who has now turned into a uh, you know a pretty effective reliever. I flagged this transaction just because the offsetting move for Ghost going to the IL was James Karinchak coming back from AAA, where he had been working for a while after uh, not being able, being ready to start the season due to injury. But uh, the the reason I flagged it was not good news. It was because um, this is not your prior James Karinchak. He still has not figured out, uh, from his minor league numbers, still has not figured out the control that completely deserted him at a seemingly random time last year that happened to probably coincide with the ban on sticky stuff. Go figure. I mean, you know, co- correlation is not causation and all of that, but since the sticky stuff ban just about, you know, 13 months ago now, he's been walking almost a guy in inning, and that didn't change in AAA this year. So, uh, you know, until further notice, uh, you know, forget the version of James Karinch that you were so excited about at the, uh, at the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. Yeah, that was an interesting story all the way around. And I think in the future, when we look back on this whole sticky stuff thing, I think what we're going to see is a lot of pitchers were affected, but most of them got past it in one way or another. But there were, there's going to be that small handful of guys who just didn't, who relied on that stuff to the extent that without it, they, whether psychologically or physically, they just couldn't re- recover the great spin that they were getting on the ball or if they couldn't get the great spin like other guys you move on and change your arm angle or do something to to make the pitches effective but there's going to be a handful of guys and I think Karinczak might be one of them who just never got past it I think that's exactly right and you know up in Boston Matt Barnes is another guy who I have on that list you know not definitively but it sure looks like that's the same thing that went on there in both cases they you know both Karinczak and Barnes have also had health issues but to your point are the health issues related to trying to compensate for the spin by changing their arm angle or working harder to on their grip to get spin? And we all know that the uh, you know the cascading effects of making changes to your delivery or your grip or anything like that can cause injury. So you know just, we can't just say it wasn't the grip they were hurt. It could be you know these things are all interrelated. But uh, those th- those two certainly do you know, a year out, look like they're on that short list of guys who never adjusted, like you said. All right, Ray, thanks very much for doing this. I guess we'll be talking with you on Tuesday when you and Todd Zola and I get together for a all-star break round table, a first half look at what went on and uh, always fun doing that. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's a good one. We're actually doing that one on all-star game day, right? I think in the morning of All-Star Game Day, that's right. That sounds great. Looking forward to it. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio.
Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Fred Zinke from Yahoo Sports and the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Fred Zinke coming up for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, I'd like to remind you about another great article at BaseballHQ.com. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Dan Marcus looks at the rosters of five clubs in the National League Central including that potentially important change in the bullpen pecking order in Pittsburgh that Nick and I discussed, some starting pitchers returning to the lineup in Cincinnati, and the catcher situations in Milwaukee and St. Louis. Also, don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It'll be another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today. Plus all our other usual great stuff, National and American League news analysis, our Baseball HQ commentaries, and Steve Gardner next Friday on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Abbott. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Fred Zinke from Yahoo Sports and the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Fred, welcome back to part two. Yes, glad to be back. And uh, this has been a great conversation so far. Let's keep it rolling. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to talk with you always. Uh, in your regular weekly Yahoo Sports column, you celebrated fantasy baseball's best stories so far this season, and and you offered a lesson within each story, which I thought was the most interesting part. The first story you wrote about was Paul Goldschmidt, obviously having a terrific year. I think through Sunday he was around 20 home runs, uh, 60-60, batting three forty one and leading all the players in baseball in value, $42 by Baseball HQ's valuations anyway. What is the lesson in Paul Goldschmidt's great year so far? Yeah, for me, it's just the reminder. And we saw this, you know, someone maybe like Adam Duvall on a way lesser scale last year, but that the year by year over year performance uptick doesn't always come from someone in their early to mid 20s. I mean, I feel like we project a regular career arc to most players that they're just going to get progressively better until they're about 26 or so. And they're going to level off for a while and they're going to get slowly get worse. Um, and that happens with some players, but it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes players have a performance uptick late in their careers for a stretch of time, you know, that you don't necessarily see coming. So what I feel like when we bid on, or when we draft players like Goldschmidt, we're just saying like, well, the, the book on Goldschmidt was ho-hum. He's pretty good. He's not what he used to be. You know, he's a safe first baseman. He's not going to leave you high and dry. But he's probably not going to win your league. Well, here he is winning in your league. And he was also great down the stretch last year. So just a reminder that veteran players, they can have year-over-year performance upgrades too. I think we have to also be more and more cognizant that that age shift has changed. I think that players are are staying at their peak longer and that their decline in age is often uh, shallower than we have become used to from 10 or even five years ago, maybe. I was just looking at Goldschmidt's uh, value, fantasy value, over the last 10 years or so. Man, there's a lot of $37, $42, $43 seasons in there, interspersed with some, I think, uh, lesser seasons, but he's always been at least $20, kind of of a performer. And this year he's up around, as I said, he's up around 40 So... How are we going to manage this in future years, do you think, when we start looking at these players? Because it, it's still a pretty decent model that we expect what you said, you know, rise up to age 26, stay there for three or four years and start to fall. I think that's probably 
more likely than not, but how are we going to pick out guys like Paul Goldschmidt who turn out to be outliers and, and extend their peaks or revisit their peaks? Yeah, this is, this is a tricky one. Um, I don't know if I totally have the answer to that. Uh, I, we have said, I have heard people say with some of the great pitchers like Verlander and Scherzer that, you know, special players do special things. And there are a couple of pitchers who have aged, you know, much better than their peers. Wainwright being another one. Um, uh, maybe we needed to give Goldschmidt a little more credit for being a special player, right? Who like, he's like, you know, almost 35, his career OPS is still over 900. So maybe we have to, we should have given him a little more credit for being that special player. Although it was tricky because he did immediately when he went to St. Louis, like that first season with St. Louis, like his OPS dropped hundred points, came back up a little, it came back up part way in the shortened season. It came, it stayed there last year, but we weren't seeing like maybe his peak um, OPS numbers from when he was in Arizona. So it made sense that he was on a steady decline. Well, this year so far, this is a career best OPS for him. I don't know if you can project someone to have a career best OPS when they're 34. Sometimes I think you just luck into it, but I think it's a reminder that it's possible for it to happen. And the other thing that uh, I look at Paul Goldschmidt and I think a lot of that early career value, fantasy value was tied up in the fact that he stole a lot of bases, especially for a first baseman. He had 15, 21, 32. That, that's a lot of stolen bases for a guy in that position. And he's obviously not doing that anymore. I think he's got two or three this year. So he's offsetting that by, by producing more in the other categories. I wonder if there's something that we need to be just aware of in a guy's ability to shift his value from one category set to a different category set. Yes, that's true. Um, and really what Goldschmidt has be, had become was a pretty similar version of what he was in his peak just without the steals. Although last year, one of the things I, I mentioned it just briefly was last year he stole 12 bases in 12 attempts. <laughs> like, again, we're talking about a first baseman who's 34, and last year he stole 12 and 12. Uh, this year he's only stolen three. There is a scenario, as great as Goldschmidt's been so far, there is a scenario, it's probably not likely, but there's a scenario where the rest of the way he keeps hitting this well and steals bases at a slightly higher rate in the second half. It certainly could be. And when you see a guy that age, and especially a, a bigger guy, who's not what you think of when you think of a, a base dealer like Cedric Mullins, you know, small, wiry, quick, all of these kind of things, you start to wonder if there's an element here of just knowing what you're doing when you're trying to steal bases at age 34, because you, you've stolen a lot of bases in your life. You've been around some great base dealers, maybe had good coaching. It could be that I mean, we know that speed is not the only thing that makes a stolen base successful. It's knowing when to go, knowing how to time the pitcher, all of these kind of veteran things that you learn over time in the major leagues. I'm with you. I think he got three so far. I wouldn't be surprised to see him get six or seven down the stretch. Uh, and there's also a team context, of course. Maybe they've asked him not to steal so much because they don't need him to, to create runs on that uh, St. Louis lineup. But uh, if that slows down in any way, they might say, you know, if you want to go out there and grab second a few times, uh, it, it would help. Yes, that's quite possible. And I, I like what you, you mentioned about that there is an art to base stealing. It's not just a matter of taking the sprint speed leaders and those are just your stolen base leaders in the exact same order. There, There is an art to base stealing. And in Goldschmidt's career, he's not only been a, a great base stealer especially for his position but he's been really successful at a high rate like in his career he's got 143 steals and 176 attempts that's an outstanding success rate for someone at any position but especially as a first baseman 
Yes, it's just outstanding. You mentioned earlier Seattle outfielder Julio Rodriguez is having a sensational debut. He's the first rookie in history I read somewhere. 10 home runs and 20 stolen bases before the break. Got his 21st the other night stolen base. I think he's got 11 home runs now. Uh, What's the learning lesson from the experience that we've seen of uh, Julio Rodriguez this year? Yeah, I think he just maybe, like, I think a lot of people were burned by Jared Kelnick last year. And um, I think Rodriguez is probably just a good reminder. Not that this industry usually needs tons of reasons to hype rookies, but um, that the rookies can take off, right? That you can draft a rookie in round 15 or 17 or something, and he could be like a first or second round type player. That's what we've gotten out of Rodriguez. We don't get that with a lot of them. A lot of them end up being disappointing to various levels, end up back on waivers, things like that. Um, like I said, Kelnick was the the poster child for that in the last couple of years. Uh, just couldn't make it happen so far in the majors. But Rodriguez is an example that if, if you want to dream on a rookie, like you can. And if it works, like the payoff can be enormous. Now his is even better than most uh, pretty, like you said, like record setting, especially when you factor in how bad his April was. Um, it's, it's really remarkable, but I, I, that him, he and Goldschmidt are like opposite ends of this, of the same type of argument though, that like, it's just a good, it, that's what makes the game fun at any point in their careers, players can pop. And that's what keeps us, you know, trying to analyze them over and over again is to figure out why. And part of the problem with doing that is we don't know why, like it's so, yep. what do they call them? Black swans. The, the, the thing that makes them interesting is that they can't be explained and that's what makes them more fun. And you, you mentioned earlier that a lot of uh, fantasy managers, especially in shallow leagues dropped Julio Rodriguez. And I wonder if there's a lesson there about acting too fast, but on the other hand, given how rare a Julio Rodriguez is, I think this might be a case where the outcome was not optimal, but the process was probably pretty good. You couldn't sit around and wait for this to happen because this really never happens or happens so rarely that you can't bank on it, especially in situations where you have to make, you know, I've only got so many spots in my roster kind of decisions and he's just not doing anything with, with his opportunities. I got to move on. Yeah, that's right. And, and unfortunately also when he was struggling was April and we know April's the most fruitful time on the waiver wire. So he was occupying a bench spot at the time when you're searching for new closers and a bunch of starting pitchers have, have reeled off some quality. I remember how many starting pitchers were pitching over their heads in April and you're like, oh, I need to grab one of these guys, like a few of them and, and see who really has long lasting ability here. And then there was Rodriguez jamming up one of your bench spots and you know, struggling. So, but good for the people who held on to them. It's a good sign that sometimes patience is rewarded. Having said that, I think that the proper move in that league context was to drop him and you can kick yourself afterwards saying, oh, well, you know, in this instance, it didn't work. I don't think it's any different than hanging on to a 35 year old guy who's clearly declining. Like if you had Miguel Cabrera, uh, on your roster. I mean, he's still hitting a little bit and he's got a decent batting average, but he's clearly not the Miguel Cabrera he used to be. And I wonder if at a certain point people hang on to those guys too long as well when the play is, thanks for all of the great uh, Hall of Fame credentials, but I got to move on. Yeah, no, that that's definitely true. Moving on is often the right thing to do. It just, it stings when you get burned by it. But I bet if you kept track over the years, moving on is more often the right thing to do than not. I think you're right. Uh, Juan Duran in Minnesota has shown a reliable 100 plus mile an hour fastball this season. He looks to have taken over the closer role in Minnesota. What's the lesson from uh, Duran and what do you expect from him for the rest of the season? 
Uh, I love this guy. I think he's got just so much potential for the rest of the season. I think he's one of the better relievers in baseball, like 48 to six strikeout to walk and 36 innings. Um, you know, he doesn't walk batters as he puts a, he gives up a ton of uh, ground balls, which is great. Um, I, I think he's awesome. I, he's clearly the twins best reliever. They do continue to mix Emilio Pagan in for saves. I'm hoping at some point this season that they just move away from that. They're in a division race. Um, I don't know if they'll totally move away from that, uh, but I hope they do. But Duran is, is so valuable. He has zero wins so far this year, which is just unlucky with how well he's pitched and he's pitching in high leverage situations. Um, my comparable with him is Emmanuel Class A from the Guardians. Um, as far as high velocity, uh, high ground ball rate, I think Duran could easily be that level of a closer right now if the, all he needs is the opportunity. And I'm hoping that comes in the second half. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Fred Zinke from Yahoo Sports and the Rotowire podcast. And Fred, you had an article last week at Yahoo about the importance of knowing the other managers in your league when it comes to trading. Wouldn't be a Fred Zinke interview if we didn't touch on trading at least. Uh, you had some common fantasy manager types. Uh, first, how do we know what type a particular manager is? Well, that's the thing is the only way you can know is to get out there and and send trade offers and send emails and talk to other managers and see. And then over time, you might start to notice some of their tendencies. Oh, this person is always interested in the rookies that I'm offering, or this person's never interested in them, or this person's always interested in the power hitters or whatever. Um, This person's really into the, we talked with Schwarber, this person's really interested in players who are on a, on a heater. Um, The only way you can find out is to get out there and start, getting to know people in your league and then eventually maybe some of these tendencies, some of them may not have tendencies, but some of these tendencies might come out over time. Something else you can do is just watch the trade activity, even if you're not involved in it and you'll notice, Hey, that Joe Smith, he's always grabbing up the prospects and make a note of it because it could be something that you can use to your advantage later on. The best target for me among the manager types that you mentioned was what you called the reactionary manager. What is this type of manager and why is he a good trade partner? Yeah, the reactionary manager is is just someone who, um, you know, if they've been burned by, especially if they've been burned by a player, so pitchers, you know, had a, a really horrible week, uh, you know, they're just likely to get rid of them at a really low cost, or maybe they chase whoever just had a, just a really great week. So uh, an example of the reactionary manager, someone who has Jose Barrios this year, he's had some really awful starts. Overall, he hasn't been valuable. The reactionary manager would probably trade him away at a very low cost, you know, after he puts has one or two really poor starts. And in the case of Barrios, at least so far, he hasn't really come around. Um, he might eventually. Um, you know, that person probably would have traded Charlie Morton away for very little six weeks ago and now lived to really regret it. So, yeah, that's that type of manager. And, and, and yes, they're an easy target for trade offers. The opposite manager type is the draft day manager. What is he and what's the opportunity? Yeah, the draft day manager is someone who just stays married to their draft day values well into the season. And I know that you should stay maybe on them in April, but I mean, the draft board changes from 2022 to 2023. When does that change happen? Well, it's continually evolving. Um, So the draft day manager is the one who right now wouldn't even consider Julio Rodriguez getting Julio Rodriguez at a fair value because 
you know, he was a 15th round pick and, you know, that person would much rather have Juan Soto right now because Juan Soto was a first round pick. And, you know, you know, the, uh, there might be a, a value there where you could go to that person and say, Hey, I'll take your Julio Rodriguez. I'll give you Juan Soto. Oh, really? You'll, you'll, you'll take my 15th round pick and give me your first round pick. I'll do that. And you're thinking, great. I need steals and Rodriguez might be just as good as Soto in the power department the rest of the way anyway. So, you know, I think this is a big win for me, but yeah, some managers, you can tell when you talk trades with them, just in the comments, they make that they stay married to where players were drafted or how much they went for in an auction all season. And even historically, like I've, I've dealt with guys who say, I, I can't give you that player. Look, he's got a, an unblemished career of good performance. And you think to yourself, well, yeah, he's 34 now though. And it hasn't been so much. Miguel Cabrera, again, an example. There are some guys who just grimly hang on to guys like that because they just won't trade him for, for what is actually a reasonable value because the names are so imbalanced that it just doesn't make sense to them. I wrote a column years ago about classifying trade possibilities amongst uh, managers. And this is the guy I called a Shirley Ellis manager. Shirley Ellis was the singer in the 60s who put out a, a song, a novelty tune called The Name Game. Um, Fred, Fred, Bobed, Banana, Fanafo, that kind of thing. Yeah. And they're so concerned about the names balancing or getting the better of the names in the trade that there's always opportunities there to offer a name guy that you really don't think is good for a, a guy with no name who's got a possibility of being good. You are known for being extremely willing to make trades. Do you think that makes you a good trade partner or a bad one? Um, I hope a good one because some of the trades I make don't even work out very well for me. So it's not like every trade I make, I win. I just am willing to make a lot of them. I, I'm not too hesitant. I'm not too fearful. I've always lived by the theory that, you know, you can make a bad fantasy baseball trade and you still uh, live in the same house with the same spouse and the same kids and all these other things, drive the same car. Doesn't it, It's not going to ruin your life. So if trade feels good, go ahead and make it. Um, or if it's interesting to you, go ahead and make it. So I hope it makes me a good trade partner. And I think making a lot of trades also is a sign of maybe being a flexible thinker and being willing to see trade and possibilities from a lot of different angles. Have you found that your reputation, uh, not only being a, a frequent trader, but being a pretty effective trader has made it easier or harder for you to get involved in a deal that people are just not too leery of making a deal with the great Fred? Uh, overall, I think harder. I do get the sense from some people that when I come calling, they're like, oh no, here comes Fred. Like, I don't want to get involved in trading with him. Um, so I do think overall harder, the only way that it has made it easier is I do have some, know some people in this industry who, if, if I'm in a league with them and they want to make a trade, they'll come knocking on my door first because they'll think, well, I, I know Fred will get back to me quickly. And I know he'll think about this from a variety of angles and will be willing to make a deal. So maybe I do find in some of my leagues by my trading leagues, you know, by mid season, there's, a, there's some people who I've just kind of crossed off my trading list because I'm just like, every time I knock on that guy's door, yeah, he's just not even interested. Like he doesn't even want to talk trade. It's just quickly like, no, I'm not trading him or no, I'm not making a deal for a pitcher or whatever. So, and I'm like, oh, okay, that person is, is kind of closed off to the idea of trading in general. So I'm probably, they're probably my last resort. So, and I feel like I'm kind of the opposite of that. Standing behind the door yelling, nobody home. Uh, yeah. we, all, we all know those kind of managers uh, yeah. as well. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Fred Zinke from the Rotowire podcast and Yahoo Sports. And Fred, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes for the balance of the season. Uh, let's start with your boons, some players who look like good value f- for now to the end. Uh, who's an American League batter you think could be a boon? Yeah, so I'm going to take Corey Seager. Um, for that, um, generally one of the more consistent hitters in baseball in his career, uh, this year, the power's there, which I think is awesome because he is not always a power guy. He's never a speed guy. His batting average is really low, but his BABIP's also just really low. I think that will normalize in the second half. I could, he's hitting 236. I could see Seager hitting 300 in the second half and you getting full Seager the rest of the way. And the fact that he's already hit 16 homers this year, like something about Seager, he's never had a 30 homer season. This could be his first one. And with a better batting average in the second half, he could be really valuable. How about a national league batter who could be a boon? Yeah. So Marcelo Zuna is my pick there. Um, it's easy to make a trade offer for Ozuna and just throw out the concept that after missing a lot of last season, he's just not the same guy anymore. He also did hit for a low average last season when he was playing, but last season, low Babbitt, this season, low Babbitt, um, his uh, X batting average by Statcast is, is more in line. Like he's a career 270 hitter. His X batting average is more, it's right around there. He's hitting 228. So same kind of thing. The And again, the power is there. He's got 16 homers. He's on pace for another 30 homer season. So all you're looking for is just some Babbitt luck to change and him to do what his expected stats say he's going to do, uh, at which point he'll look a lot better. And that's a good lineup if he can start hitting, getting a few more base hits to score even more runs. Over to the mound and back to the American League. Who's a pitcher in the American League who could be a boon? Yeah, well, we just mentioned him, but it's Duran on the Twins for me. Um, I just think... The, the potential there is so great. Like I, and when I say so great, like I'm talking like top five reliever in the second half of the season, if they just turn over more save chances to him, or if just these high leverage roles result in him getting some vulture wins, um, I could see him being, you know, like I said, as good as pretty much any reliever in the second half. And in the national league, a boon pitcher. Okay. So I get teased about this guy a lot. It's Alex Cobb. I feel like I write about him every week. Uh, and, and some people have caught onto that and will mention this to me on social media, like, Oh my gosh, you wasted another hundred words on Alex Cobb. But he has been, I think maybe the unluckiest pitcher in baseball this season. Um, it's starting to normalize. He's been better in his last few starts, his strikeout rate, his velocity was up in spring training and he, he managed to keep that into the regular season. His strikeout rate this year is great. Um, his ground ball rate is good. His Babbitt's just been really, his ground ball rate isn't just good. It's great. His Babbitt's just been unlucky. It's 355. It recently, as recent as about three or four starts ago, it was 400. So like I said, it started to come down. Um, the Giants typically do a better job with starting pitching than they've done so far this season. So I'd be interested to see if they can straighten that out in the second half. I think his XERA is something like third in baseball among pitchers who have faced like at least 200 batters. So basically among starting pitchers who have made a decent amount of starts. Um, I think it's something like third in baseball. Like that's, that's incredible. That stat for him. So I think there's a lot of upside in him in the second half, if he can stay healthy, which is always a big if. I also like that he pitches in San Francisco because I think they really know what they're doing as a coaching staff out there, as we've seen over the last few years with reclamation products like Alex Cobb, for instance. Uh, Yes. Let's go over to the Baines uh, in the American League. Who's a batter you think could be a Bane? 
Yeah, I just think Xander Bogarts is from a batting average perspective. He's started to come down a bit, um, and I think that's going to continue. But he's hitting 318 now. That batting average was even higher a week or two ago. Um, so I think it's starting to normalize. But his Babbitt's 385. That's one of the highest in baseball. Um, his, I think that stat has that batting average is over shadowed the fact that he's not really hitting for power. He only has seven home runs. He's only, he's not a big base here. He's got three. That's pretty normal for him. Um, Xander Bogarts is good. He's he's in a great lineup. He's a good fantasy asset, but the, nothing in his profile makes him seem any better than he was in other seasons. His X batting average is about 270, which is pretty normal for him. So I think Bogarts is already starting to come down, and I think that'll maybe continue in the second half. I think he needs a power surge to save the fantasy value he's had so far. Yeah, I've got Xander Bogarts on a team, and uh, I've had some trade inquiries. So you look into a guy, of course, to see what, what he's doing, and his average exit velocity is the lowest I think it's been in years and years. His hard hit rate is quite low, uh, not as low as the short year, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, concern here, I think, for Xander Bogart's owners. And if you're thinking of making a trade offer, uh, think long and hard. Uh, who's a National League batter who could be a bane? Yeah, I'm going to go, and this one hurts to say because I have a lot of shares, but Manny Machado, um, the ankle injury concerns me as far as stolen bases in the next few weeks. He's the kind of guy who gets you some steals, but it's not an automatic base stealer. He already had seven this year. I worry that we're not going to get another seven in the second half because of the ankle. Um, and then beyond that, his BABIP's really high. That's pushed his batting average up. Um, he really profiles as more of what he typically is, like a 280 hitter or something, than the 316 he's been so far. And his power numbers so far this year haven't, haven't been special. He's got 12 homers. So he's been good. I think he'll be fine in the second half. I just think maybe we've already seen the best of his 2022 season. Another guy whose exit velocity and hard hit rate are down. I happen to have both Bogarts and Machado on two different teams, so this is not good news for me. Back to the mound we go. Who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane? Yeah, I, I feel like we've started to buy into Joe Barlow as a lock, lockdown, you know, reliable closer. And I'm not quite sure that he's there yet. Um, so far, he's been fine. He's got 13 saves. He's got three wins. Um, his whip's 0.99. Um, but his batted ball luck's been really good. It's 205. This is BABIP this year. His strikeout rate is poor. Um, and most of his ERA indicators are in the fours or fives. Like his FIPS 429. Some of his other ind- ERA indicators are even higher than that. So I'm not sure. I know Texas can give him like a pretty long leash because like they're not super competitive this year, but I'm not sure if Barlow has reached the point where he actually is a reliable closer. And I feel like that's how the industry is now treating him. And if you're keeping score at home, his expected ERA by baseball HQ's values 457. So you're right about that. Uh, Finally, how about a national league pitcher who could be a Bane? Yeah, it's, you don't usually hear lucky and Colorado Rockies pitcher in the same sentence, but Daniel Bard has been pretty lucky so far this year. Um, his ERA is 205. He's got 16 saves out of 18 attempts. Coors Field typically chews up closers unless they're really good. Um, Bard's FIP this year is 374. He's walking about a batter every second inning, which is not good for a closer. He's been really fortunate to only given up three home runs. I just... I look at Bard and I think he has been really lucky and lucky in, like I said, lucky in Coors Field doesn't usually last. So I could see him, maybe he's a better pitcher than I'm giving him credit for, but I could see him blowing up in spectacular fashion the second half where you have him in the lineup for a home week and he, 
you know, has two or three like really bad blown saves in one week and then loses his job. And I don't know, maybe I've been saying, I've been saying trade this guy all season. And so far I've been wrong and maybe he'll keep proving me wrong the rest of the way, but I'm going to stick to my guns on this one. Fred Zinke's Boons, Corey Seeger of Texas, Marcelo Zuna of Atlanta, Juan Duran of Minnesota, Alex Cobb of San Francisco, his Baines, Xander Bogarts of Boston, Manny Machado of San Diego, Joe Barlow in Texas, and Daniel Bard in Colorado. Fred, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. For sure. So my articles drop on the Yahoo site and I'm on the Rotowire uh, podcast every Tuesday. Um, and if you follow me on Twitter at Fred Zinke MLB, um, I try to make sure that I put out links to all of those articles and podcasts as they happen. Well, Fred, I was hoping this would be fun. I mentioned before we actually started recording that uh, had I been thinking, I could have got you on last Friday for Canada Day because, like me, you're here in Ontario. There's a couple of other Canadian um, experts that we could have joined together, and maybe that's something I'll think about for next year. But for July the 8th, I'm really grateful that you took the time, and uh, I appreciate the call. It was so interesting, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Yep, this was great. We'll, we'll put it on our calendars maybe right before Canada Day next year. Absolutely. Thanks, Fred. Happen. No problem. Fred Zinke writes for Yahoo Sports and appears weekly at the Roto-Wire Fantasy Baseball Podcast. One more quick break, and then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But one more item from the Baseball HQ site I wanted to mention is the Eyes Have It podcast. In the latest edition... HQ scouting team analysts Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey discuss the importance of scouting defense for fantasy and evaluate White Sox prospects third baseman Brian Ramos and shortstop Colson Montgomery, Tigers prospect right-hander Reese Olson, and Guardians prospect right-hander Hunter Gaddis. The eyes have it every week from the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com. That and the other items I've mentioned are only a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, commentaries, and podcasts you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today, and roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, injury analysis in the Big Hurt column, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Boston starting pitcher Brian Bayo is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's a big leaguer and we're proud of him, according to Red Sox manager Alex Cora, as quoted on Nesson on July 6th. I grabbed him and I said, hey man, you're a big leaguer, Cora said, as seen on Nesson's July 6th postgame coverage. He gave me a big smile. 
Obviously, 23-year-old Brian Bayo currently has a lot to smile about after making his big league debut on July 6th and being recently named to the 2022 SiriusXM All-Star Futures game in Los Angeles on Saturday, July 16th, representing the American League. He has terrific natural stuff highlighted by an upper 90s fastball with late sinking life, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 minor league baseball analyst. Plus, both his mid-80s slider and his high-80s changeup are arguably plus pitches at this point with tons of movement, giving him three impact offerings, according to the July 6, 2022 edition of call-ups on BaseballHQ.com. Figure in his 10-4 record with a 2.33 ERA through two levels of the binders in 2022, and perhaps it's easy to see why Bayo is a big leaguer now. Additionally, with Michael Waka slowly recovering from a case of dead arm, Bayo will most likely take the hill again for Boston on Monday night in Tampa Bay, as reported by CBS Boston on July 7th. But with Boston's rotation perhaps full once Waka, Chris Sale, and others return from injury, Bayo, with his limited experience, may not be a big leaguer for long. That's why 23-year-old Boston Red Sox right-hander Brian Bayo, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Worth noting, according to MLB's StatCast, despite featuring a four-seam fastball capable of touching triple digits, Bayo only threw seven four-seamers out of 79 total pitches as Major League debut against Tampa on July 6th, relying more heavily on his changeup and sinker. In other words, it appears that Bayo's pitching mix in his Major League debut may have been a strategic decision to induce weak contact or grounders given that the opponent, the Rays, currently ranked third in the American League in ground-out-to-air-out ratios demonstrating which teams ground out the most. Once again, CBS Boston recently reported that Bayo will likely take the mound again on Monday against the Rays, this time in Tampa, perhaps offering a viable streaming option. Nevertheless, Heim Bloom, in an appearance last Thursday, July 7th, on WEEI's The Greg Hill Show, said, This guy is as exciting a starting pitching prospect as we've had in a long time, in reference to 23-year-old Boston Red Sox red-handed starter, Brian Bayo, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about the third time through the order penalty. One of the advantages of being a generally contrary person is that I get lots of ideas for research just by listening to other people talk about a subject, especially if they claim some level of expertise that doesn't exactly jibe with what I'm hearing. The other day I was listening to a baseball show while I was walking my dog Leo. It wasn't a fantasy baseball show, but one of those shows where they gather a bunch of former players and managers and other baseball industry veterans to pontificate about the game. On this particular show, the host and guests were going on at some length about starting pitchers and the third time through the order penalty. And penalty is just what they called it, every time they needed to refer to this particular metric by name. 
Calling the phenomenon the third time through the order penalty is pretty justified, partly because it makes intuitive sense. As a pitcher goes through the opponent's batting order a third time, he's probably getting more fatigued, even while the hitters are getting an increasingly good idea of what he throws, where he throws it from, and how his pitches shape. But being contrary, my first thought was, who says it's always a penalty? Because if it isn't, but everybody thinks it is, it interests me as a fantasy manager. Because it seems like guys who don't have a third time through the order penalty might make pretty interesting targets for fab pickups or trading. So I did what I always do in this situation. I looked it up. I used the splits tool over at Fangraphs to gather through the order strikeout minus walk data for all 67 pitchers in the season so far who have faced at least 70 batters a third time through the order. Overall, there is a times through the order penalty. The first time through for all pitchers in the cohort were 17.7% strikeout minus walk rate. The second time, it was down to 15%, a 2.7 point drop. And the third time was 13.9%, a further 1.1 percentage points down and 3.8 percentage points down overall. But the performances of individual starting pitchers varied quite a bit. 19 of the 67 pitchers did indeed show strikeout minus walk rate drops in both the second and third times through the order. But 19 pitchers is only 28% of the starting pitchers in the study. 18 pitchers, that's 27%, actually went up the second time through the order, then back down during the third. And of those 27, 10 had higher strikeout minus walk rates in the third time through the order than they did in the first. The most common result was actually pitchers going down in the second time through the order and back up in the third. This might be because getting through the order a third time means you stayed in the game longer and were pitching well. And overall, 24 of the 67 pitchers, that's 36%, had a higher strikeout minus walk rate in the third time through the order than they did in the first time through the order. Some penalty. So, to conclude this public service announcement, I'll give you some individual pitchers to ponder. I mentioned there were six starting pitchers whose strikeout minus walk rates went up the second time through and again in the third. They are Herman Marquez of Colorado, Merrill Kelly of Arizona, Garrett Cole of the Yankees, J.T. Brubaker of Pittsburgh, Patrick Sandoval of the Angels, and Jordan Montgomery of the Yankees. The caveat here is that three of these guys, Marquez, Kelly, and Brubaker, started with very low strikeout minus walk rates in the first time through, below 10%, so they kind of had nowhere to go but up. Among two of the three others, the gains were relatively small, a percentage point or two or three. Garrett Cole started high at 21%, then went higher to 25%, and then went higher still to 30%. So my conclusion is that Garrett Cole is really good. That's the kind of insight you only get here on Extra Innings. The starting pitchers who went down each time through, and ended up down more than 10 percentage points from the first time through, Alec Manoa of Toronto, Marco Gonzalez of Seattle, Patrick Corbin of Washington, Sean Manaya of San Diego, Zach Plesak of Cleveland, Ian Anderson of Atlanta, Dylan Cease of Chicago, Tariq Skubal of Detroit, Tyler Anderson of the Dodgers, and Kyle Gibson of Philadelphia. Marco Gonzalez was the only starting pitcher in the entire study whose third time through the order was actually negative in strikeout minus walk rate. That is, he actually had more walks than strikeouts the third time through. 
Other pitchers who went down each time through, Martin Perez of Texas, Frankie Montas of Oakland, Nick Pavetta of Boston, Justin Verlander of Houston, Jose Barrios of Toronto, Zach Wheeler of Philadelphia, Jamison Tyon of the Yankees, Carlos Rodon of San Francisco, and Shane McClanahan of Tampa. Now, all of these pitchers went down relatively small amounts. Their third time through the order dropped nine percentage points or less. But McClanahan is a real special case. His first time through the order strikeout minus walk rate was 31.944445%. You might be wondering why I went to that many places of decimal. Because the second time through plummeted all the way down to 31.94444%. And from there, it went down to 28.8%, which is still higher than all but Dylan Cease's first time through the order. And Cease loses 7 points the second time through, and another 9 percentage points the third. So, my conclusion is that Shane McClanahan is really good. I'll try to post the full table of these results on BaseballHQ.com's story announcing this podcast. That'll all depend on how fast we get our cable and internet service back here in what is looking like a nationwide outage by one of our major ISPs. If I do manage to get it up there, you can look at it. It's not behind the paywall. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com, and I have my extra innings commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 8th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 26 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Fred Zinke from Yahoo Sports and the Fantasy Baseball Podcast at Rotowire. Fred is always a very interesting guy to talk with about baseball, and he really knows about fantasy baseball trading and fantasy baseball roster management. He's a terrific guest. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Pods or Pocket Cast, Google Pods, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today and all the usual great stuff, our National League and American League news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries along with Steve Gardner on next Friday's Full Edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Friday and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.